everyone. I can see the Arctic gang is back together, the talking, the networking, that's what we love. Good morning, my name is Heather Conley. I'm Senior Vice President here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And I always like to say, when we can talk about the Arctic, it is a good day, so we're already gonna start our day off right. Um, thank you for joining us. We uh, are delighted to be in partnership with the Norwegian Institute for International Affairs and a consortium uh, that's looking at the Russian Arctic. And so as part of this program, this is part of this half-day uh, event which has been generously funded by the Norwegian Research Council. It's an opportunity to look at the Arctic of the future, not only to dive deeply into Russia's uh, very ambitious economic aspirations for the Russian Arctic, but to look at other aspects and then to dive more deeply into the economic dynamics of the Arctic, something that will drive the Arctic of the future, whether that's Russia's economic plans, now China's plans, or looking at the wider, what we call blue economy. But there is absolutely no better way to start a discussion of the future of the Arctic than with the Commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Zunkoft, whom if I believe, sir, Zunkoft in German is the future. So what perfect way to talk about the Arctic future. Um, and uh, as Admiral uh, Z, as we affectionately call him, the 25th com Commandant of the United States Coast Guard, this is actually a moment, I have to say, of sadness, because for extraordinary years uh, as Commandant of the Coast Guard, I wish uh, the Arctic was his total focus. He somehow manages to keep his focus on it while he's juggling extraordinary responsibilities uh, for interdiction in Latin America, cybersecurity issues. The Coast Guard is deployed in over 160 countries, and no one seems to know that. We're just so grateful that we see the Coast Guard and ever present on our coasts and, and helping to protect uh, life uh, through storms or through search and rescue. So what better way uh, in many ways to say thank you than to invite Admiral Zunkoff to give what I call his exit interview to help us understand and put into context the last four years. And uh, he has been extremely busy, he and his Coast Guard colleagues, um, uh, what he typically calls the Arctic the fourth coast, I love that, I'm stealing that. Um, but truly the Coast Guard is our Arctic first responder. Very exciting developments. Admiral Z was the, the, the signer of the Arctic Coast Guard Forum, putting that historic structure into place. Recently announcing a vessel traffic management scheme for the Bering Strait with the Russian delegation to, uh, to the International Maritime Organization. Some exciting news uh, to upgrading the Coast Guard presence in Alaska with first response uh, cutters and patrol boats. This is all exciting, but we all just really want to hear about the icebreaker, so I'm sure you will tell us that. But uh, before I welcome Admiral Z to the podium, let me just say thank you. Thank you for your decades of public service. Thank you for defending our nation. And thank you for everything you've done for the Arctic. We're so grateful. So with your applause, and I want sustained applause, please, uh, dear audience, please welcome Admiral Z.
Good, good morning, and, and Heather, I really do have to reciprocate because if not for CSIS, this has really been our, our booster engine to get this rocket called the Arctic and some of the ways and means of how do we dress the Arctic off the ground. So uh, it was about four years ago I was here, and we talked about the Arctic in, I would say, aspirational terms. Uh, and then we had an Arctic strategy, we had a national strategy for the Arctic region, and we went from aspirational to conceptual. Uh, well, guess what? Now we are virtual. Uh, we have got five shipyards competing um, to start building heavy icebreakers. We have the appropriation to build one and a half. Uh, six is the number we need. Um, but four years ago, people would say, there's, there's no way you will get, we've been working this for 20 years, and we will never get this program off the ground. But when you look at an icebreaker, you know, that is the ways and means aspect of a strategy. So, so what's at play in, in the Arctic right now? Uh, we have an ocean that is opening up as ice recedes, and each year we're seeing record recedence of sea ice in the Arctic region. Uh, and then what is filling that vacuum? Human activity. Well, what kind of human activity? Much of it is economic related. Uh, if you look at the Yamal region, and certainly this is vital to Russia's economic security as they look at LNG coming out of Yamal and when you have relatively ice-free or you have ice-capable LNG carriers uh, that can make the shortcut through the northern sea route uh, to support the European market. China. Why would not China want to be interested in the Arctic region as well? If they have the economic means to do so, and so what is at stake up in the Arctic? We know there's about 13% of the world's oil, about a third of the uh, world's natural gas, rare earth minerals on the seafloor. Um, back in 2014, oil was trading at just over $100 a barrel. Uh, it then dropped to as low as $30 a barrel. Today it's trading at about $70.70. Uh, it's still a very volatile market, uh, but we often look at extracting oil and gas through the short-term lens. Uh, other countries view it as the long-term. Quite honestly, this is strategic reserves, if you will. Uh, maybe not for today, maybe not for tomorrow, but when technology is brought to bear that, that can extract these natural resources for a profit. Uh, yes, the United States is an Arctic region. So when you look at what are some of the strategic ends of the Arctic, um, one of those is clearly economic, the other one is security. Uh, we are looking at Russia militarize some of the islands uh, that used to be predominantly for search and rescue. Uh, they will launch two ice-breaking corvettes that will carry cruise missiles that will ply the Arctic region as well. Uh, and so we have to ask ourselves, how do we protect our sovereign interests in the, United, in the Arctic region, on the fourth coast? Well, what do you need an icebreaker to do? Uh, so it's no coincidence that we have stood up an, an integrated program office with the United States Navy to look at what do we need an icebreaker to do in the 21st century. 20, 30, maybe even 40 years from now, which is about how long these platforms are in existence. And if you don't factor in a military equation, you're probably a little bit short-sighted. Uh, and a lot of people ask me, so what weapon system would you put on there? Uh, I don't know what the weapon system is going to be of 2035. It might be directed energy. It might be something completely unique that isn't in our inventory today. But if you don't reserve space, weight, and power to accommodate those systems, if you truly have to exert sovereignty 
on the fourth coast, uh, we need to be able to assure we have the flexibility to do that. Uh, as I've said in previous discussions here, you know, the United States Coast Guard in working with NOAA, we have mapped out the equivalent of the state of Texas beyond our traditional 200-mile EEZ. And if you look at what's in our 200-mile EEZ and in our extended continental shelf, uh, vast riches exist there. Uh, as the one of the few nations, I always say, so what do Libya and what do North Korea and what do the United States all have in common? And you'll probably say, I'm not sure where that Venn diagram intersects. Well, it intersects with three countries that have not ratified the Law of the Sea Convention. Um, and so absent ratifying, you know, we really don't have the governance mechanism to declare our extended continental shelf, an area the size of Texas with vast riches. Uh, China is very interested in this very same area, and they view that as global commons. Why would they not? I can't fault them for doing that. Um, and if they establish a pattern of behavior, and if we ratify the Law of the Sea Convention and decide, hey, this is ours, there's been a pattern of behavior with China and say, well, we traditionally operate there. Russia, on the other hand, uh, has declared all the way up to the North Pole as part of their extended continental shelf. It's a bit of a stretch. And we've seen repudiation of the nine-dash line, but it has not stopped aspirations by other countries saying, well, we still declare the nine-dash line as ours. Um, in this case, clearly I'm talking about China. Um, so you have potential tensions arising with freedom of navigation. Um, I don't anticipate that you will see ice-free Arctic you know, year-round, um, but quite realistically, as early as 2030, uh, with a number of studies, you know, we may see an ice-free Arctic uh, as early as 2030 uh, in the, you know, I would say the shoulder season, talking you know, July, August, September, maybe into October. The more viable route, quite honestly, is the northern sea route. Uh, it's a little bit more circuitous going through the Northwest Passage. Uh, last year, we sent a Coast Guard cutter through the Northwest Passage from Alaska uh, to Baltimore, Maryland, uh, over the top. Uh, but when the wind stacks up that ice, uh, they can't move. Uh, so it is not ice-free year-round. And oh, by the way, when we did that, we worked with our Canadian counterparts because Canada, like Russia, views the Northwest Passage as their internal waters. Uh, we interpret that as, no, this is an international strait um, and is open for transit passage, which is our same interpretation of the Northern Sea Route. Uh, we don't have agreement there. Uh, those are policy decisions. Those are policy decisions that we, the United States Coast Guard, do not own. But if at some point in time we truly want to assert freedom of navigation, uh, this would be a platform that we, you would use it with an icebreaker, a U.S. icebreaker, a national asset. Uh, and so when I talk to the Secretary of the Navy, uh, as we look at how many carrier strike groups we have, uh, they say, well, how many heavy icebreakers do we have uh, that can operate anywhere in the world? I said, we have one. Um, and if one gets into trouble, we don't have a self-rescue capability. Um, we might have to call on another nation uh, to extract us, or we get extract the crew and we have literally abandoned ship. Uh, it's a place where no service chief wants to find themselves without a self-rescue capability. Looking at the Arctic logistics, huge challenge up there. 
Um, but to understand the logistic challenges, over the last several years, I've made a number of trips. When Shell was drilling up there, uh, I noticed that they had a flotilla of 28 ships uh, supporting that drilling activity. Uh, it was all sea-based and not shore-based operations. Um, I went out a year and a half ago out to Greenland uh, to visit the Jakob Savin Glacier on the west coast of Greenland. Now, when we flew over the ice fields, we noticed torrents of blue, crystal blue water going down moulons, big sinkholes, and where is all of that water going? Uh, it's going into the North Atlantic. Why is it leaving? Because temperatures are rising in the high latitudes. We met with the Inuit elders um, out in Disco Bay, uh, which is normally frozen nearly year-round, and now it's ice-free year-round. And I said, what is happening here? He said, well, that glacier hadn't moved in the last millennium, but in the last five years, it's retreated 25 miles. That is glacial, uh, that is the speed of light, if you will, for glacial retreat. Uh, this last year, I was up on the North Slope visiting a number of First Nation villages. Uh, we were in the village of Shishmaref. And when we flew in, the first thing I noticed were homes toppling into the ocean. As sea ice has retreated, uh, that is a natural breakwater for winter storms. And right now, there are about 30 villages north of the Arctic Circle in Alaska that are endangered by, by erosion and a rising sea level. And what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. We had 52 inches of rain in Houston, Texas during Hurricane Harvey. Uh, warmer air holds more moisture. Um, and if you got to Hampton Roads, Virginia, during a spring tide, you have standing seawater um, in homes that were valued much higher than they are today uh, because of a rising sea level, and then you have land subsidence. If you're down at the uh, village of Ile de St. Charles in Louisiana, no one's home. Uh, that was a First Nation residence as well. About 140 people lived there. Uh, we spent several hundred million to evacuate their tribal land because it is now going underwater. So sea level is rising. Call it what you want, but when I talk to the Inuit elders, they, get, they have a name for it, and it's called climate change. Um, and so I don't get after the attribution of that, um, but as we look at sea ice retreat and water levels rise, and some of the modeling predict, you know, we could have upwards of two meters by the end of this century. And it's very difficult to model melt in the Antarctic region. This is just Arctic melt as well. Um, but that is at play as well, which means all the more reason, you know, we need to have good domain awareness of what is happening in the high latitudes, what is happening in the Arctic. What do you need an icebreaker to do? I mean, I mentioned on the one side, you weaponize it. But at the other, at, on the other hand, you know, this is really the sentinel of the Arctic as well, to provide that domain awareness. Right now, our communications hover just above the horizon on the high latitudes. Uh, we, in fact, the United States Coast Guard is investing in CubeSats uh, to improve our persistent coverage for search and rescue for distressed beacons. But the other logistic challenge, uh, on February 26, there was a, a 3,000-gallon diesel bladder uh, that collapsed in Shuyak Strait, which is in the uh, Aleutian Island chain. 3,000 gallons. It cost $9 million 
to clean up a 3,000-gallon oil spill. Tyranny of distance, of what it takes to stage an oil response, and this is on the Aleutian Island chain. You know, what happens if you have an oil spill on the North Slope? If you want to talk logistic challenges, there is no bigger challenge than that. And then how do you get after that? You know, do you do it by investing in shore infrastructure, or do you invest in at-sea infrastructure, as Shell had done in the past as well? So yes, challenges persist. But when we talk about miscalculations in the Arctic, the biggest miscalculation uh, is, is if we literally freeze our relationships and, and look at the Arctic region through a unilateral lens, uh, which is why we, the United States Coast Guard, created the Arctic Coast Guard Forum when the United States chaired the Arctic Council to bring in all of the eight Arctic Council members. Um, and let's approach the Arctic region from a Coast Guard lens, first and foremost. What is at greatest risk? Clearly the environment. Less than 5% of the Arctic is charted to what we would say 21st century standards. So what if a vessel transiting encounters a seamount that's not charted and now we have a vessel run aground up there? Search and rescue. How do we protect the norms of the First Nations that live up there as well? And more importantly, how do we share information, especially scientific information? Are fish truly going to migrate north? We declare a moratorium of fishing on the high latitudes, but it's just that. It's a moratorium without an enforcement mechanism as well. Um, so this is an opportunity uh, to really work by, with, and through the other Arctic Council nations with other Coast Guards. Uh, and we have a very transparent relationship. At the height of Hurricane Harvey, uh, we were actually doing the largest ever search and rescue exercise hosted by Iceland uh, this past September. Not a tabletop. Uh, we moved a Coast Guard cutter up there. We had aircraft. We had planes. But really look at some of the challenges of you know, how soon can you arrive on scene? Um, where are the trauma centers in the Arctic? Um, they're not there. Uh, where do you build out logistic hubs? But more importantly, how do you communicate with seven other nations besides the United States? How do you push information back and forth? And if you want to build trust and confidence in another nation, don't start with a freedom of navigation exercise. Start with something that's humanitarian in nature, such as search and rescue, such as environmental, such as we have a movement of fish uh, moving into the high latitudes that could threaten the subsistence lifestyles of people who live up there. These are very near-term issues that especially indigenous residents of the Arctic are grappling with right now. Uh, and so let's work that, but work the relationship piece first. Um, and so I'll bring it full circle with the relationship that we have had and enjoyed here at CSIS. And again, Heather, uh, maybe we're going to name that first icebreaker the Conley. Uh, we'll see. Uh, it does. Uh, but no, I see a, a lot of brilliant minds in this room here today, and, and I would be remiss if I just sit here and, and go on and on. I'd, I'd really like to have a, a, an exchange with you as well. So let me uh, see the remaining time so we can have a, an, an open and frank discussion. Thank you very much. Oh, Admiral Z, thank you. I know time is very short. I want to ask one question, and I, I do want to open the floor. So this is in the spirit of an exit interview. What do you think, 
in the Arctic portfolio, your greatest accomplishment and your greatest regret. So I'll let you hold that thought. And let me take one or two questions uh, from our audience. If you could just identify yourself. Okay, I have three right across here, and I'll let you pass the microphone. Please introduce yourself and ask your question. Stuart uh, Dye from Cleveland Maritime Group. Uh, my question relates to the law of the sea. How critical is it for us to uh, become a subscriber to that. Do you see any progress in that regard in strategic needs sense? Yeah, great question. Uh, and we've been working this for, you know, since the Law of the Sea Convention was first promulgated. And, and here we are. I mean, you know, when you start looking at Libya, North Korea, United States, among the non-ratifiers, and many people look to the United States. Uh, at, at the International Maritime Organization, they actually look to the United States Coast Guard um, as the governance model for all things maritime. Um, but it's a little bit awkward if we haven't signed on to the rules of behavior, otherwise known as the Law of the Sea Convention. Uh, for us to truly be that leader in the maritime realm, you know, we need to sign up to the ground rules. Uh, ironically, a lot of discussion right now is about the Jones Act. You know, the Jones Act of 1920. We need to revisit the Jones Act. It's old law. We need to get rid of it. Um, so since you asked about law of the sea, you know, if you have an opportunity, here's what happens if we repeal the Jones Act. Uh, all our coastwise trade will probably be done by a third nation, namely China. Not just coastwise trade, but plying our inland river systems as well. If we're looking at, hey, we can lower the cost of doing business, um, we can have a third nation do it on our behalf. The next thing that goes away are our maritime academies. You don't need them because we have foreign mariners. We don't know who they are, but they're foreign mariners plying our waters and our internal waters as well to conduct maritime commerce, which is a $4.6 trillion enterprise in the United States. And then the next thing that goes is our shipyards. Our shipyards and the technology that goes with the shipyards. So uh, a segue from Law of the Sea Convention, but right now there's this fixation of we need to get after the Jones Act. That is not the, the time and place to after Jones Act. This is much more strategic as we look at Law of the Sea and the consequences of repealing the Jones Act uh, could really have severe repercussions as well. Admiral John Farrell from the Arctic Research Commission, thank you very much for all you've done for the Arctic. And thanks for inviting us to have a frank discussion. Appreciate that. You spoke passionately this morning and well informed about climate change in the Arctic. And you did say, however, that you didn't want to assign causality in a foreign policy article. And today you said you didn't want to assign attribution to that. Uh, I realize the Coast Guard is not a scientific organization, but there are scientific organizations that are very willing to assign attribution to that to human activity. And even the White House U.S. Global Change Research Program does do a very nice job of assigning that attribution. So I, I think it's really important for Coast Guard to consider that as you plan 20, 30, 40 years out. You've got to get to that cause. Thanks. Yeah, John. So again, I, what I look at is that empirical data. Uh, and the empirical data I look at is the carbon footprint um, that, that's been measured basically since our independence, um, acidification of the ocean, um, and then ocean temperature. Uh, and what you see is since our independence to present day, a, a 10,000 fold increase in carbon footprint. Um, along that same trajectory, you see rise in acidification of our oceans. 
most people are not aware that over 90% of the Great Barrier Reef experienced coral bleaching this last year. And then with that, you know, along that same trajectory, all, all three of these lines are, are perfectly in alignment with one another, uh, with proportionality is a rise in ocean temperature as well. Um, so that was then, and this is now. What's tomorrow going to look like? Um, I have to deal with the consequence. Um, and so when we start looking at, you know, where do you build shore infrastructure in the future, um, you might want to build it where there's a 100-yard floodplain. Uh, because as bad as the rain was in Hurricane Harvey last year, the year before they had an unnamed storm that, that dumped 26, 26 inches of rain in Baton Rouge. No explanation for it. Why all the rain? Um, so again, uh, a lot of people can speculate why, but I have to deal with the, you know, the consequence of that as well. Uh, Caitlin Antrim, Rule of Law Committee for the Ocean. Thank you for coming. And since Law of the Sea has already been raised, I can turn to another topic of interest. In your work through the Arctic Coast Guard Forum, have you gotten a feeling for how Russia will use its new Arctic bases and new Arctic shipping in more a Coast Guard function of emergency response and such? Having bases that can hold 100 to 150 people in the dead of winter gives you a, an operating platform, or gives them an operating platform we can't match on the most traveled route. So I'm interested in seeing what you've been learning so far. Well, we learn a lot, and, and obviously some of what I've learned I, I can't share in, in, in this format. But yeah, they are reinvesting in their distant search and rescue stations. Uh, but we're also seeing militarization of those very same facilities as well. So, so it's dual purpose. Um, and again, it, there are sovereign interests. So we, if you look at all of the natural gas coming out of Yamal, going through the northern sea route, you'd probably ask yourself, you know, it would probably be in our best interest to be able to protect our sovereign interests as well, not just do search and rescue, um, but what if someone tries to encroach upon this unique trade route that we have that, you know, arguably provides them a trade advantage over others, especially if you're declaring that as sovereign uh, and not open to transit passage, um, and if someone were to challenge that. But, so we are seeing duality. Uh, not just for search and rescue, but also militarization of these facilities as well. I'm going to have you come back to my question. Your greatest accomplishment, your greatest regret. So, uh, I, I, f first of all, I, I do not believe in legacies. Legacies are, are, are cancerous because as soon as you come into any position and say, this is going to be my legacy, uh, it reminds me of Forrest Gump. Uh, you saw the movie and he's running across the, the country several times. Uh, and then he finally stops in the middle of a desert somewhere. He goes, I'm tired. I'm going to go home now. And everyone behind him, they says, now what do we do? Um, no, uh, you want to make sure everyone keeps running in the same direction. And not only running, but running with fresh legs. Uh, so this has really been whole of Coast Guard, and not just whole of Coast Guard, but, but all of DHS. Uh, getting DHS behind us as well uh, to support where we are uh, today going from aspirational to now virtual. You will ships, first heavy icebreak will be delivered in 2023. My biggest regret uh, is, is I won't be on active duty to have an opportunity to command that ship. Uh, so I think that would probably be my, my biggest regret, uh, but maybe my only one. Uh, but uh, it's been the fastest four years of my life. Uh, the support that we have seen on the Hill the support we've had with this administration ha has been nothing short of phenomenal. 
uh, with the administration and with the 115th Congress. Uh, and those are relationships uh, that, that you build over four years. Um, and it's not a baton you can say, okay, you now have you know, a relationship with these people as well. Uh, it doesn't pass as smoothly as that. Uh, I mean, so that'll be the next, you know, the, the challenge will be of how do we establish those next relationships. Good news um, is my successor, Carl Schultz, has a lot of experience on the Hill. Uh, this is instinctive for him, and so I am very confident uh, we're not going to drop this baton, and uh, we're going to keep moving this thing forward. Thank you, Heather. Well, Admiral Z, you have an extraordinary legacy, and we promise, in the spirit of Forrest Gump, we're going to keep running. Uh, uh, and uh, I actually think that icebreaker needs to be called Admiral Zunkoft. So, with your applause, please thank Admiral Z for a great conversation, a great tenure. Colleagues, if everyone would just stay seated, I'd like to invite our first panel forward, and then we're just going to escort Admiral Zunkoft out, but please don't move. We are going to be right back in one minute. Thank you. Hello. Thank you so much for your patience. This is when we sort of turn our tiles and uh, get our scene change up. So I think Admiral Zinkoff gave us a wonderful framework for the next part of our conversation. And we're just waiting for one more panelist. So we're going to start. And then uh, when uh, Professor Maureen Laurel comes in, we'll sneak her in the, the side. But uh, you really can't talk about the future of the Arctic without talking about what I like to affectionately uh, term the Russian Arctic superpower. 50% uh, of the Arctic coastline, obviously important economic ambitions. Admiral Zimkov talked about uh, a growing security posture in the Arctic. And so we're looking forward to diving into Russian ambitions economically and perhaps militarily and what that tells us about the future of the Arctic. Let me begin uh, by introducing my colleague, Dr. Julie Williamson, um, 
from NUPI, the Norwegian Institute for International uh, Affairs. Julie is a senior research fellow. Um, she has uh, a long-standing uh, research agenda looking at Russia uh, from conflict resolution in the North Caucasus, uh, widely published, and has been extremely thoughtful in thinking about uh, Russia's Arctic ambitions. Many of you may be familiar with my other colleague, Dr. Pavel Bayev, uh, the research professor at the Peace Research Institute of Oslo. If you have not seen Pavel's uh, Arctic blog, it's certainly one that I commend to you. Uh, Pavel is, uh, has written extensively on Russia's military reform, uh, again, conflict management in the Caucasus, Central Asia, energy, uh, foreign and security policy, Russia's relationship with NATO, uh, prolific writer, uh, and we're so grateful that he also is on this uh, research project. So let me begin and turn this to Julie for some framing comments and then to, to Pavel, and then we will get into the discussion. Welcome and thank you. I will actually, um, I will be talking specifically on Russian-Norwegian relations. And I should start by saying that I'm not actually an expert on Arctic politics, but on Russian foreign and security policy and on the conflict in Chechnya in particular. And the trigger for the paper, which this uh, talk is based on, is an increasing frustration following 2014 with the tendency to analyze and understand Russian politics, and in particular, Russian security policy, in isolation from the outside world, from what other states do. Because when you study conflict, you study interaction between parties, not because you want to uh, attach blame or guilt, but because you want to understand the game and how escalation happens. So the question which my colleague uh, Christian Derde and I asked ourselves is, will uh, the so-called new war triggered by the crisis in Ukraine metastasize to the high north and inform Norwegian-Russian relations there? Uh, for those of you who don't know, those relations uh, are characterized in excellent liter literature as particularly uh, cooperative. The Arctic, or the High North, as we call it in Norway, uh, has been characterized by compromise and cooperation for over 20 years, if you look specifically at Norwegian-Russian uh, relations. So our uh, theoretical premise is that a state's foreign and security policy, say Russia's, is shaped through uh, domestic relations, say how important are the security voices or the hawks, in Russia, but they're also shaped through inter interaction on the international arena. How other states relate to Russia, what policy they pursue towards Russia, even small Norway, contributes to shaping Russia's choice of policy in the high north. So we have investigated the changing Norwegian-Russian interaction patterns in the high north from 2012 until 2017 by trying to pin down what kind of policy modes these two states have operated in. Is it basically what we call a realist policy mode, which privileges security concerns regardless of policy area? Is it an institutionalist policy mode, which privileges international regimes, institutions, and even in the security sphere, prioritizes committed institutional collaboration? 
Or was it a diplomatic management mode, characterized by careful adjudication between different courses of action with different, within different policy areas? So the method has been just to try to establish what kind of policy mode these two states have operated in, how they have changed in the course of those years, and what kind of interaction between Norway and Russia it makes for. And since the rest of this day, I think, is going to uh, uh, deal with Russia extensively, I will cover Norwegian policies, um, just to try to show this interaction between the states. So if we go back and look at it during the Cold War, despite policies from both sides uh, being pursued predominantly in what we call the, the realist mode, there were also policies pursued in the diplomatic management mode. And from the Norwegian side, very consciously, for example, through the so-called self-imposed res restrictions, which meant, amongst other things, that Norway did not have foreign bases on Norwegian soil to reassure the Soviet Union that there would be no attack from the, the Western side, from the NATO side, towards the Soviet Union. And there was also very close um, bilateral cooperation, for example, in the fisheries. And this was a close cooperation which both sides pursued. Now, after the Cold War, Norwegian policies were per, uh, pursued predominantly in the institutionalist mode. Norway sought to strengthen multilateral structures and legal regimes and bring Russia in. So, for example, Norway initiated in 1993 the, the, the Barents-Euro-Arctic region. And then from 2005, if you look at Norwegian policies, you see Norway seeking institutional collaboration with Russia across issue areas in the high north, across every area nearly. However, Norway did not pursue committed institutional collaboration with Russia on security issues. Rather, Norway worked already from 2006-2008 to bring NATO's attention to the north and to give Norway a leading role in NATO. If we take a look on the Russian side, uh, what we could term policies of neglect, which characterized uh, Russia in the 1990s, were substituted by policies actually pursued more in the institutionalist and diplomatic management mode in the 2000s. And I think the agreement between Russia and Norway on the delimitation line in the Barents Sea from 2012 was a manifestation of what can grow out of this type of uh, regional state interaction imprinted by an institutionalist policy mode. Now, if we zoom in on um, the Norwegian side from 2012 onward, Russia was talked about, and what we do is basically we've gone through hundreds of pages of Norwegian documents just to see how Russia is talked about and related to. So Russia was talked about as a partner across uh, all issue areas, and even in policy areas where Russia is represented as a challenge in Norwegian discourse, the solution is always collaboration. And Russia's weak human rights or democracy credentials are not given much weight at all. Even Russian military modernization in 2012 in the high north is just represented as something normal, a return to normal, not a threat. So this Norwegian way of relating to Russia changed actually even before 2014, which is, of course, kind of a, a, an important point because it's the annexation of Crimea, as you, as you all know. 
With the new Norwegian government from 2013 onwards, Russia was spoken more uh, about as a, rule, as a rule breaker, and the Russian military modernization in the north was no longer represented as nor normalization, but as a sign of ru uh, rising Russian great power ambition. And if we judge by uh, MOD texts and initiatives, Norway's main collaboration uh, partner in the north should not be Russia, but rather NATO. And security became a national priority in the north already at this time, at the expense of the other issue areas. So needless to say, these, this way of viewing Russia and relation, uh, relating to Russia were, was amplified after 2014 and the crisis in Ukraine. Uh, and even in the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs text, we, we find that you know, the, the way of relating to Russia is more uh, as if Russia is pursuing power politics belonging to a different age. The parallels were drawn to, we haven't seen anything like this to the, since the Second World War and so on. And so a stronger NATO in the North is now constituted as a condition for good relations with Russia in the North. And Norway has modified itself in post restrictions from the Cold War. We now have 330 uh, US Marines at Varnes. We have exercises actually going a bit closer to the Russian border and definitely expanding in terms of how many uh, soldiers uh, participate in these exercises. We even have talks of Norway becoming a part of um, the missile shield. Whether that is going to happen or not is. is is a, is a different question. <clears throat> and uh, importantly, I think here, Norway also dramatically scaled down diplomatic uh, contact with Russia on the top level from 2014 until March 2017. Bilateral cooperation in concrete issue areas such as fisheries, search and rescue, nuclear waste, and so on, which are very important, continued. And I would say that this cooperation is now kind of bouncing back, but it was definitely affected. Uh, after uh, 2014. And the sanctions regime, uh, which had, had the kind of unintended effect of reducing collaboration between Norway and Russia in the business sphere into a tool in a security-oriented uh, conflict. And the interesting thing is to, to look back and see how it used to be considered as the kind of bridge-building mechanism in the high north for uh, building trust and common interests between Russia and Norway, precisely the business, the business opportunities. So does it matter that Norway pursues its policies towards Russia in the high north more through a realist mode these days? Does it affect Russia's way of relating to Norway in the high north? I think it does, uh, although one should not underestimate, underestimate the, the domestic drivers of Russian uh, politics in the high north. I think, I think it does. And just as shifts in Norwegian policies towards Russia, of course, have been affected by the annexation of Crimea and the, the substantial military modernization, which play into this representation of Russia as a potential threat in the high north, Norway's a way of talking about and relating to Russia, prioritizing in the high north, affects Russian policies. So if we go back to 2012 and look just shortly at uh, it from the Russian side, uh, Russian representations of the Arctic as an area of collaboration and as an area of opportunities for Russia were very distinct, if you look at how Russia talked about the Arctic. 
At the same time, the clearest threat in this region was explicitly stated uh, in 2012 to be that NATO would get involved. And that is, of course, precisely uh, what Norway works for, with increasing persistence since 2014. And this is not a moral judgment. It's very, it's very understandable that Norway works for that, but it has a certain effect. And if you look at how Russia uh, um, talks about Norway these days, it has, uh, it has changed. Norway has changed from being the partner in the high north to be NATO in the high north, or even the extended arm of the US, or even just a part of the US military system. This is clearly expressed in a whole row of uh, statements by, for example, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, and in, com in comments by the Russian embassy in Oslo. And a whole set of what Norway considers small events, be it these uh, troops, these American troops in Varnes, Norwegian contributions to military exercises in the Baltics, or, and so forth, all of these small events are construed as part of a buildup of the Western threat in the high north. And Russia acts on these perceptions. In the realist mode, privileging security concerns regardless of uh, policy area. So we have close to the Norwegian border not only uh, an increasing number of SNAP military uh, exercised, exercises, but we also have Norwegian businessmen who have worked in Russia for 20 years, uh, now thrown out allegedly for being spy, spies. And we have lots of other uh, examples. So I would like to uh, just conclude that the Cold War is metastasizing to the high north uh, and relations between um, Norway and Russia. And I think in a way which surprises many of us. Just three years ago, the verdict was more, it's happening in Ukraine, it's not going to shape our relations up north, and the Arctic and the high north is a particular space. But at least uh, through the text that we have been looking through, it looks as if uh, this, unfortunately, um, is, is happening. And the, the point of my talk is kind of just to, to say that we're going to miss why this happened if we don't look at the combination of policies on both sides. So for those of us who usually just study Russia, it has become important to look at also how, how Russia interacts with the states around. Thank you. Julie, thank you so much. You're absolutely right. Uh, Norway is a, is a wonderful indicator of both uh, patterns of cooperation but potential tensions. I, I think I would probably uh, respectfully submit that the high north low tensions should probably be substituted with high north potential tensions, as Admiral Zunkoff had mentioned. Okay, Pavel, uh, we are very anxious for your insights as you have observed all of these small steps, as Julie said. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you some of my uh, analysis on this matters, and I'm really glad to be a part of this research undertaking together with CSIS, which is coming to an end. It was a three-year-long project. Uh, every project come to an end, and I have to admit that at the end of the project, I do not have many firm conclusions. I have more questions than answers. I have more worries than recommendations. And that's why I'll try to cut my presentation shorter, kind of throwing at you my um, worries and doubts rather than uh, concrete propositions. The bottom line is, 
And I am researching the Russian uh, part of the whole uh, complex Ar Arctic uh, puzzle. Yes, Russia is an Arctic superpower, and it is very confused superpower. My bottom line is that the Russia's Arctic policy has stopped working. And it is uh, probably a uh, questionable proposition because so many, uh, uh, so many uh, conclusions and recommendations take Russia's might in the Arctic as a, as a point of departure and we'll proceed from there about how to address that. I see that might as a very uh, problematic proposition. Uh, in a sense, when I started doing research on the Russian Arctic policy, and for me, kind of the, uh, as for many others, the point that triggered my interest was Chilingaro's flight planting expedition. So I wrote my first report uh, soon after that in the year uh, 2007. A lot of things have changed. But even back then, I thought that there is an interesting combination in the Russian Arctic policy. There is an emphasis on developing international cooperation and uh, in particular in uh, economic ties. And there is a different track of militarization of increasing Russian military uh, activities, presence, infrastructure, and so on. And these tracks were never really perfectly coordinated and not, never in harmony, very often uh, in conflict with, with one another. Nevertheless, it was possible to proceed along both, generally achieving results uh, on each of them, and that's no longer the case. You cannot proceed on both. Uh, neither path is actually working, is yielding you profits and results you, you would expect. And in a sense, this situation is somewhat similar to Putin's famous address to the, uh, to the parliament uh, on uh, March 1st, which also consisted of two parts, the economic and the, and the missile part. And the compatibility between the two parts was non-existent, but that was not the most striking part. Probably for me, the most interesting was that neither part has any chance of being implemented. That economic breakthrough he was kind of describing in this economic situation with this economic policy is impossible. And all these fancy missiles, wonder missiles, cannot be produced and built on this economic foundation. A bit of the same happening in the Russian uh, you know, Arctic policy. And we will be discussing why exactly kind of the economic situation and the international cooperation is not yielding any more the profits and results in the second part of the seminar. I will concentrate more on the, on the hard security and the military part of the, uh, of the equation, uh, in which you can distinguish three different elements. Uh, all the Russian military, pro there is probably more. Uh, three is just a convenient number. Uh, and one is the strategic nuclear capabilities, very much concentrated on the, uh, on the Kola Peninsula. There is a lot of investment in their modernization. Sustained program uh, focused uh, on the introduction of the new generation of nuclear submarines which was the single most expensive project in the whole uh, armament program, which is now coming to an end, and it will continue to be the single most expensive uh, project in the new one, which after a long delay is, uh, um, is recently uh, approved towards the year 2027. Not everything is going well with this big project, particularly with the missile, with the Bulava missile, which is the main weapon system 
for this uh, new generation of submarines. Nevertheless, it is a generally rational and uh, well-established track you need to uh, modernize your uh, sea leg of your nuclear triad simply because the old submarines have to be taken out of, uh, have to be retired, have to be out of circulations. For some of them, uh, the time is, is very ripe. They are long past the expiration date. Uh, and it is gradually happening, uh, probably slower than other uh, risk, some risk assessment would prescribe. Nevertheless, this is a, a part of the of the military activities for which there is very little question. Yes, it has to be done. This investment needs to be sustained. You are somewhere in the uh, halfway through this uh, very huge and expensive project. You cannot stop now, whatever the, the resource shortages. The second element is the militarization of the Northern Sea Route, which was mentioned by, uh, by the commander, and it is really something new, because for that matter, Russian Northern Fleet, mighty as it was in the Soviet days, never had any capabilities of going east, of working in the ice, uh, ice waters. It never had any ice-class ship, for that matter. It was always going west into the Atlantic. Now they are experimenting with, uh, with the cruises in the eastern directions, which is very hard for these uh, ships, uh, always have to be accompanied by icebreakers. Uh, uh, and the program of building the ice-class ship is not going very well. Um, and the new bases which are appearing along the Northern Sea Route um, are not really very, uh, very mighty bases. Yes, combination of uh, military capabilities and search and rescue uh, is at least one good thing about them. But overall, you look at the rationale of that part, and you cannot avoid the conclusion. It is about meeting the non-existent threats. It is about asserting your sovereignty uh, in the what-if scenarios. Uh, which, yes, sometimes makes some sort of sense, but probably not in the situation Russia is presently in. Investing in the what-if scenarios is, is a luxury you can sometimes afford, but not when your economy is in that situation, and not when you have that many real challenges facing you. Probably North Korea being the, the best example in this regard, uh, North Korean test site is closer to Vladivostok than to Pyongyang. And what is Russia doing in meeting this uh, very real security challenge? The short answer is nothing. Russia is not a part of these talks. Russia is not building up military capabilities there. It is not doing not, uh, anything of any significance in meeting this threat. It is investing in the military bases along the Northern Sea Route, which is not threatened in any meaningful way by, uh, by anybody. To what degree this is sustainable? Yeah, it, it is, again, uh, possible to argue back and forth. I am not particularly worried about that uh, part of the Russian military preparations. I am more worried about the third element, which is increasing uh, your military capabilities of various of conventional type on the Kola Peninsula, building, in fact, a position of strength and military dominance in that area, including the uh, anti-access area denial uh, bubble. That concept is non-existent in the Russian military strategy. It is very often uh, invented for the Russians by the Western military analysts very successfully. Uh, but nevertheless, the capabilities are there. 
Russia cannot build any more the strategic bastion in the Barents Sea. Uh, the northern fleet is not strong enough for that. But what it can build is this uh, very particular bubble and building up conventional uh, capabilities uh, supporting that. That is where... Very good. Yes. <laughs> Those naval bastions were a really great part of uh, our, uh, Soviet blue water strategy. Gorshkov was a big enthusiast of that. It required so, uh, so many ships that were not, never really convincingly built even in the Soviet times. And now the Northern Fleet is so overstretched, performing some missions even in Syria, that no, nothing resembling a bastion could be, uh, could be built there. And we have also to say that the Navy is generally, by and large, a designated loser in the new rearmament program, uh, and the shipbuilding isn't going well at all, uh, is, even if there is hardly any admission of that in the official discourse. But nevertheless, too much evidence have accumulated uh, to show that there are deep problems there. And uh, part of them related to, partly related to sanctions, partly to uh, many other uh, issues in the, in, the, in the shipbuilding. It is not really a, a, a significant threat. But nevertheless, this is the picture of these three elements. And the main question is, what, uh, what now? Where from here? Or to put this question in a kind of academic way, is Russia going to be a status quo or a revisionist power in the, uh, in the high north? And generally, from a power in decline, you would expect status quo policy. You would expect trying to cling to the situation which benefits it institutionally and in, the, in many other respects. And Russia, as very often, uh, in my opinion, is an exception from this rule, a power in decline which has very pronounced revisionist tendencies. And when I'm spelling this message very, in the Arctic conferences, very often it's a strong rejection of that uh, proposition from many uh, stakeholders in the Arctic policies. There, are, um, there is a very strong lobby uh, which is really committed to developing cooperation in the high north, which is principally a good thing. Uh, kind of cooperation and kind of building cross-border ties is, is a goal worth pursuing. The tradition in that, uh, uh, in that milieu is generally bracketing out, ignoring completely what is happening on, in the hard security domain. And every institution from the Arctic Council, the Barents Cooperation, people are saying all the military matters are none of our concern. That's somebody else's business. And my worry is that it's not possible to ignore that anymore, because Russia has invested so much in building up its military might in the high north and is able to harvest so little dividend from that that this position uh, is not anymore kind of a luxury you, you can afford. It is something you really have to change. Yes, you can uh, scale back your military preparations. You can cut down on, the, uh, on these uh, expenditures, which are not really necessary, whatever your threat assessment are, whatever your imagination can, can put uh, as far as uh, kind of NATO capabilities and U.S. intentions, and Russians are very good at, uh, at that. Uh, 
but you, the moment you become real with your threat assessment, you, you discover that your position of strength on the Kola Peninsula is invincible. Uh, nobody can possibly threaten that. Uh, uh, and building further that position of strength means that you are acquiring capabilities uh, well beyond what is necessary for the kind of defending your protecting your interest. You are kind of now building capabilities for projecting power. What forms and shapes would that take? Whether Svalbard, uh, which is in the dark part of that uh, of that bastion defense is a lowest hanging fruit, is a kind of target of opportunity. Yes, there is a lot of need uh, to think about this. It is a very uh, peculiar uh, international law phenomenon. Uh, Svalbard with its kind of old treaty, with, its, uh, uh, with Russia being able to, uh, uh, to maintain presence there, demilitarized for that matter, which makes it all the all the more attractive as a target of various hybrid uh, operations by the polite green men, or not particularly polite for that matter. That's kind of one part of my concern. My more serious concern is about that Russia has invested so much in its nuclear capabilities that it cannot afford this investment to remain idle. It needs to bring its nuclear um, might somehow into political, uh, into political game, to make it a useful instrument of policy probably not by staging uh, a, uh, a nuclear strike, but uh, somehow increasing the prominence of, of, that, uh, of that element of its power, making it kind of count for more, because you have the old, old, all this power and it's not working for you. It's, it's remaining idle. One way to bring that into political fray is uh, in the, again, in my very uh, dark thoughts, is resume nuclear testing. Uh, and there is a nuclear test site on the Nova Zemlya, which has remained uh, out of use since the last uh, nuclear test more than 30 years ago. Nova Zemlya, by the way, on this map is not exactly right. It consists of two islands, and not one very long one. Uh, but. Uh, Still, the nuclear test site is, uh, is not completely shut down. There are some testing going there. One of Putin's uh, wonder missiles, in fact, was tested on that, uh, on that site. Staging there kind of a small nuclear explosion will not even violate international law because the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty is not in force as yet, partly because the United States have not ratified, by the way. Not, it's not only an issue with the, with the law on the sea convention. And that probably is the, kind of, is the dark part of my, of my worry, and I'm spelling it out with the hope that it's not going to happen. And that's the rest of my, uh, of my uh, worries and concerns. Thank you very much for your attention. Pavel, thank you. That's a lot of darkness to unpack, I think. <laughs> But we're going to take our uh, take our opportunity. Um, I I was struck uh, with both of your comments, uh, thinking about Svalbard, and putting Svalbard back into to some context. And I, I want to get to that in a moment. Um, Julie, let me let me start with some some questions, and then bring you both into the conversation. Um, 
You know, what's striking to me about uh, Russian-Norwegian relations, this incredible moment of promise in 2010 when the uh, maritime border, the demarcation of the maritime border, which really encouraged uh, uh, energy production, seismic work, activity, things like that. When, when sanctions were imposed, and of course Norway is not a member of the European Union, but Norway is following that sanctions regime, a lot of Norwegian economic uh, activity was what we call grandfathered, meaning uh, it was still allowed to proceed, but new investment. Help us understand on the energy uh, spectrum in particular, what, what is the relationship today between Norwegian energy industry and Russian energy industry because energy, Arctic energy, is so important uh, for Russia to eventually, if it can, and uh, Pavel's uh, quite pessimistic about their economic aspirations, but it's going to be energy that's going to, and mineral resources that's going to pull them out. What is the status of the economic, energy economic relationship between Norway and Russia today? I don't know if I'm the right person to answer. I think I might, you know, on the conference. I, I can give it a shot. Well, of course, uh, the great optimism which I was describing, which actually starts long before 2010, is related to the fact that uh, we are going to find a lot of uh, energy resources in the Arctic and that Norway and Russia uh, would cooperate on that, and that Norway has the technology, Russia needs the technology, and a lot of expectations, for example, relating to the Stockmann uh, field. So, so, but that was, you know, that was one of many aspects where Norway and Russia were going to, uh, to collaborate and where they have mutual interests, in addition to the classical uh, fields of, of fisheries and so on. Um, and of course, even if uh, the Stockmann field did not, uh, that cooperation did not work out, and that was clear uh, long before uh, 2014, there was still, it, it still didn't affect, you know, Norwegian-Russian relations negatively. Um, and then I think when you come to 2014 and Norway decides to, to just, in fact, in a way, copy <laughs> the sanctions regime from the EU uh, without considering, you know, how will it affect energy relations or business uh, relations, you had uh, a, a consensus that this is the right thing to do uh, because it, it was considered kind of a soft response uh, uh, to, to Russia's uh, actions uh, in Ukraine. And I, I, I gave some talks together with people who do work in this field at the time, and I know they were very unhappy because it would affect you know, the, the, the possibilities of collaborating on, on energy issues. But they still very loyally kind of uh, uh, followed suit. Uh, as I have understood now, uh, uh, not only in terms of energy, but in business relations in general, people are finding ways of, and in the fisheries, for example, importantly, ways of kind of moving around <laughs> the sanctions, and, and that, that, that some of it, you know, some of it stays intact, actually. But, but, but still, the result is that um, these economic relations have been, I mean, security is prioritized on top of those uh, economic uh, relations, and that, that remains uh, the same. But if you look at the Norwegian debate, I would say 
that what I characterized as more realist-oriented policies, that the debate is changing <laughs> a, a bit in the sense that these other voices in the Norwegian, uh, in Norwegian society are coming back, and also the voices that say, okay, so we used to have both deterrence and reassurance in our relations uh, with the Soviet Union, and it actually gave us security. We need to find back to that balance between, yes, deterring, but at the same time pursuing policies uh, in other uh, issue areas uh, and pursuing diplomatic contact so that uh, we have, uh, um, we can, you know, build and, and, and continue our good bilateral relations in these other uh, spheres. Yeah. Uh, we had an event yesterday afternoon on four years of Russian sanctions and its impact on Russian foreign policy and the Russian economy. I have to say one notable quote was, uh, in, to your soft answer, you know, we, we imp uh, impose sanctions before we send soldiers. And in some ways, right now we have, in Norway, sanctions and soldiers. And, and I have to say, speaking of darkness, there was not a lot of optimism in the room that sanctions will be lifted anytime soon. So we're going to be, I think, in this period. Pavel, let me ask you, this gets back to your, what really caught my attention in your comments was about the power projection capabilities on Kola, on the Kola Peninsula that go well beyond what we would normally see. Uh, and, and this gets to a question on, Russian claims uh, to extend their, uh, the outer continental shelf. And I'm always the first one, I don't know, I'm sure you all, how many journalists have, have phoned and said, oh my goodness, you know, the, the claimant process. And I'm always the first one to say, no, no, Russia is following uh, the international legal framework of unclosed. This is exactly what we do. We submit claims, they're adjudicated, and then uh, bilateral or trilateral talks have to uh, proceed. But I have this suspicion, uh, concern, that if this process does not unfold and there is um, uh, concern and anxiety uh, about Russia's uh, claims to extend the continental shelf, could some of that COLA power projection capabilities be used as intimidation for that? Now, I'm, I'm falling into Pavel Bayev's darkness, uh, but uh, if you want to, just help me understand that these claims, which are absolutely being followed appropriately, correctly, nothing wrong with that. But is there a dark side that we should be thinking about as well? Yes, it is an interesting question. But let me first take a half a shot at your first question. And I think it is uh, quite remarkable that the whole uh, and large part of the energy connection between Russia and Europe is exempt from sanctions. Russian oil and gas keep flowing through Ukraine despite all the uh, troubles there, into Europe with no interruptions. There were all sorts of uh, worries about Russian gas weapon, weaponization of, of, uh, of energy. And through that period of confrontation, you know, the energy area, uh, energy connection, energy export functions just fine, with the single exception of the high north. It's exactly there where energy ties and projects are affected by the sanctions. So it is uh, somewhat a paradoxical contrast with the ideas of bracketing the north out of the confrontation, keeping the cooperative ties in the, in the high north there, making that as an exception of the general confrontation. So there is a bit of a clash between these two things. 
And your point about sanctions and soldiers, it is still uh, sanctions are imposed on Russia, and still they're not soldiers on Russian soil. Though soldiers are in Norway, you're not sending soldiers together with sanctions. It's still a different, uh, a different story. But as far as Russian power projection capabilities and the Russian uh, claim is concerned, yes, claim is perfectly legitimate. I, if there is one point where I disagree with the commander, is about the analogy with the nine dash zone. That is a unilateral declaration that goes against every um, uh, uh, every point in the law on the sea convention. Russia is following the international law by the book. It has submitted its uh, claim to the UN uh, Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf. It's waiting patiently for the verdict. The verdict is not going to come anytime soon because there is a clash with the Danish claim and possibly also with the Canadian claim, which is yet to be submitted this year, probably. And the Commission cannot take any, make any recommendation on the overlapping claims. It generally tells the claimants, go out and sort out your differences and then come back. Uh, and Russia is not generally doing anything to, uh, to demonstrate that it's going to proceed unilaterally. It's not uh, showing any uh, revisionist behavior in this regard. And the capabilities for power projection are mostly in that part you see on, on the map, on the western, uh, essentially the ice-free uh, territory. Why the claim is way east between the Lomonosov and Mendeleev regions, uh, um, and the Arctic is an, not a small region, your power projection capabilities here are not very useful there. And they are not particularly uh, suitable for operating in the, uh, in the um, uh, really icy, uh, icy claims, because what they consist of, uh, partly, is the new capabilities for long-range cruise missile strikes on very small naval platforms that can operate uh, only in the ice-free uh, ice waters. Also of the, uh, of the strengthened capabilities in terms of amphibious operations. Again, you, uh, you can do that only in the, uh, the ice-free waters, even if you train for uh, fighting in the snow and the Russians are uh, not really hiding this particular part of their trading, advertising it very strongly how tough the Marines and the new Arctic brigades are uh, in this respect. Uh, you can stage, uh, and it was staged, very high risk uh, jump from the high altitude to, to the North Pole, which is a Truth be said, a crazy operation to perform, uh, really taking uh, risk way, way beyond acceptable by Western standards. But you know, the value of that is essentially a show, a show which, which tells that you can perform that, uh, this sort of uh, operations where it really matters, not over the North Pole. But the, again, uh, Svalbard, uh, m uh, maybe even Greenland, maybe northern Norway are far more uh, uh, attractive targets than doing anything there where there is nothing except, between, uh, except the underwater ridges, which you can claim only symbolically because you cannot do anything there. Uh, you don't have technology, you don't have infrastructure, you don't have uh, uh, platforms which can operate there. If you are going to make use of your accumulated power ready for being projected, it is somewhere much more in this region and not, not out there. So I might, uh, 
Uh, two quick questions, and I want to turn to our audience. I know I have lots of questions for both of you. Um, the first one, President Putin has put an, an enormous amount of prestige on the Arctic. He speaks uh, about it often. He he witnesses both the uh, you know economic. Uh, uh, opportunities like in Yamal and military exercises, he's he's deeply involved in this. What happens if this project fails, or can it fail because he's put so much prestige to it? And then I know we're going to talk about this in the second panel, but I want to China's entrance, uh, and certainly we've seen an enormous amount of Chinese diplomatic and economic activity across the Nordic countries. Certainly, China's investment, both financial and technology, at the Yamal uh, LNG project has been substantial. How has that changed the dynamic, or at least perhaps changed Russia's interaction, either economically or in security? So, Julia, I'll let you take a whack at both those questions, and then Pavel, and then we'll turn to our audience. I think I will concentrate on on the first one and the perception that, uh, which Pavel also in a way um, spoke about in his t talk, that if you know if you have all these ambitions, if you have invested so much, then inevitably you will you will use it. And I think I would like to to question that perception. And and the point of my point was in a way to say that the point of my talk was to say that. You know, to start out with, both sides really looked at uh, the Arctic as this collaborative space of opportunity, where it, it is in both our interest to cooperate, and actually did not speak of the other party as a threat at all. Uh, and there is no, there is to start out with then non-existent. That's the word you you use. But how, I think the interesting question is, how are we getting into this kind of dynamic uh, in the Arctic that actually there is a threat there? You know, Russia is not only protecting its national interests, but they might have offensive intentions. Uh, and on our side, Russia is not normalizing with this modernization in the Arctic, but it is potentially becoming uh, a threat. So I think I would, I would rather, to continue the analysis, I would rather focus on that. You know, how is this dynamic developing? Uh, how, how do we get there? And I think the, the, uh, the, the importance of looking at the less tangible aspects of the relations, not just counting capabilities, but really whether the uh, relation is moving is extremely important because it is a fact that the way that we have viewed Russia in Ukraine is now affecting our way of viewing Russia uh, in the north. And that's, in a way, the, the big problem. And on the Russian side, uh, I don't think necessarily that it's only because they want to use the capabilities they now have, but it is the fact that they didn't see uh, us as a threat in the north before. But they are starting to. <laughs> they are starting to see, to focus on NATO uh, and just forget about this other part of Norway, which is actually still there. So I think that's uh, my, my main concern, is not so much that Russia has ambitions to, to govern that space, uh, to protect its sovereignty and, and so, so much, and has the capabilities to do that in the north, but that we're getting into this conflictual relation. And how then suddenly you have a Russian null 
for putting those capabilities into offensive action. And both parties seems to, seem to be getting there. You know, they're relating to the other party as a threat. So that's, in a way, the, the game which I think is, is the big challenge here. It's the interaction, the way of viewing each other and the lack of, of, of trust. And uh, for me, very importantly, I mean, good that we have, like, the Arctic Council and um, the Bear uh, uh, Cooperation, where we can still talk. But if you look at what happens even in those uh, 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 councils, the talk is becoming much more of a just, you know, uh, presenting your stand and not really uh, moving towards uh, cooperation. Um, yeah. So I think that would be that's that's a twisted uh, yep. answer to your question, but that's my main main worry. It's it's the interaction here. It's the relational thing. Well, I think as we focus on the security, less the economic and the environment, which of course the Arctic Council can do, security is out of the realm of all of these institutions. We have no place mm. to go with mm. this conversation mm. to increase transparency, mm. increase confidence building measures. This doesn't fit nicely into anything. And all we keep hearing is, well, this we can't deal with this. I, I agree with Pablo. We, we risk now of, of enhancing that cycle of conflict because we simply do not have a venue to do this. The NATO Russia Council is not a venue. It's not going to be the Arctic Coast Guard. Form. We don't have a place to do this. And so we're continuing to slide into this. And we've got uh, NATO's major exercise this fall, Trident Juncture, which will be a Norway-centric uh, exercise. Our you know, NATO's large. So we, we keep going, but there's no place to talk about this. Pablo, your thoughts? And then I hope you can yes. express some views on China. Yes, I will come to China. But I want to address another part of your question about Putin's personal yes. feelings about the Arctic. And it is a question open to interpretations, because I some very often feel that Putin is personally interested, has some sort of a again, Arctic feeling, which many, uh, many experts uh, for that uh, region cherish. Uh, and for that matter, there was a series of this kind of international conferences, Arctic as a ter territory of dialogue, one year after another, and they stopped in the year 14. And there was no conference in the year 15, and no conference in the year 16. What we're hearing in that period, not from Putin, but from the Russian top brass, was that the Arctic is one of the key priorities in our strategic planning. Not the Far East, not the Caucasus, not Central Asia, the Arctic. And then suddenly, in the year 17, it is again the conference. And Putin is speaking there again and saying international cooperation and let's, uh, let's keep the dialogue going, which is probably a better message than um, uh, emphasizing strategic priorities for the, uh, for the Arctic. But nevertheless, you cannot really put much trust in these feelings. After all, Putin had a lot of personal interest in the Stockman project was really following it very closely. And then Norway decided to pull out because it didn't make economic sense. And what was the consequence? Nothing. Putin forgot about the project, and uh, which might tell you about, uh, about his interest, uh, to what degree that is a factor here. And now to China. Russia's attitude towards China's ambitions in the Arctic uh, has always been very ambivalent. Russia was very unhappy about China's claim to become an observer in the Arctic Council and was blocking it for many years and then f uh, finally agreed. I think what changed that attitude somewhat was this Yamal uh, LNG project, 
which again had extremely weak economic rational much as Stockman and needs heavy subsidies from Russian state and even the subsidies were not enough until China stepped in and saved the whole project and you know, provide, provided money and agreed to, uh, to buy the gas uh, if the Russian subsidies continues. The, uh, the economic, uh, economics of the whole enterprise continues to be very shaky. And even from China, I, my reading is it was much more a political gesture than real interest in this LNG which is abundant on the, uh, on the market. Uh, for, for China, it's an interesting experiment. Uh, for Russia, it is really a matter of crucial importance. This asymmetry uh, is, doesn't bother well for, the, uh, for these relations. And you know, after rescuing the project, China feels much more confident vis-a-vis -vis Russia in its Arctic ambitions, issuing now the new white paper and making these ambitions known, not expecting any, any sort of response from Russia, not expecting any objections or anything else, because for Russia, now the cooperation with China in the, uh, in the high north is the only thing that really works and the only hope they, they might have despite China having no technology, no experience in really working in this water. The only thing China ha has is, uh, is funding and for many uh, uh, Russian projects in the high north that is a crucial matter. Sustaining all these uh, bases uh, in the eastern part along the northern sea route uh, is a very expensive proposition. They are maintenance heavy even if they are small, small bases and there is no supporting civilian infrastructure. So you start cutting your defense budget as it is already happening. Uh, you start economizing on that and you can expect that these uh, bases will, uh, will really suffer. Thank you. Fantastic. All right, we've got so always see the hands shooting up. This is exciting. We have, let's bring our audience in. Uh, we'll start in the back, please, Matt or Max. Uh, could you introduce yourself and then we'll take two or three questions and then I'll return to you. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much and thank you for a remarkable two sessions here. Thank you. Um, my name is Anita Parlo and um, I, I worked on a, I was the team lead actually for the launching project of the Wilson Center on the Polar Code. Uh, in uh, uh, the bearing uh, between Russia, Canada, and the US. And I recently was on a Fulbright in Iceland looking at offshore petroleum development in, between Iceland and Norway, which is, was to be with CNUC not going to happen, and finished a, recently a law review article on distributive justice and offshore natural resources development, and just finished a project on ocean, uh, villages sliding into the sea in Alaska. So my question, not to sound uh, a bit, uh, a little teensy bit contrarian <laughs> in, in terms of a question that relates ultimately to China and, uh, and Russia, and the questions of US, what is the US policy that's driving some of this ship? Uh, for example, as mentioned, um, US is not a signatory to UNCLOS, yet likes to think in terms of an area the size of Texas, <laughs> so ex uh, which not, hasn't exactly been uh, demarcated uh, from, as a scientific matter are brought to the proper authorities. What about the Northern Sea Route, as also was mentioned in the Northwest Passage, where the U.S. views as international waters, which the nations uh, of record uh, of concern view as internal? And what about icebreakers? We're talking about domain awareness uh, in a region, and we have 
you know, one and another one on the way. Somebody once made a comment that the way the U.S. talks about icebreak is it's as though we're a landlocked country in Latin America or sub-Saharan Africa. And we're pretty good on the way below the water uh, and way up in the sky, but on the top of the water we don't seem to be uh, that good. And uh, sanctions are going on, I'll get there, I promise, and, uh, and we have uh, as a result, or would have happened anyway, relations between China and Russia economically and the development that is occurring in China viewing itself as a near North nation. Uh, I, my concern and question is down the road as we look at these things and have been discussed in somewhat pessimistic terms, although I think the Norwegian model, Norwegian-Russian model is the model to go by, um, is when does the U.S. or would the U.S. start to view the transiting um, through, up through the Northern Sea Route and the Bering uh, in military terms as a threat uh, in some manner and suddenly view uh, a trade situation that would be growing and evolving in a, in a manner that would threaten U.S. interests? And forgive my time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll have a question up here. Steve? Yep, it's coming. Microwave. Microphone's coming. Thank you. Please introduce yourself. Uh, Stephen Blank, American Foreign Policy Council. Uh, my question is to both members of the panel. Given the importance of energy, oil and LNG in the Arctic to Russia, I'd like you to go out a few years because all the analyses I'm reading tell me that the price of energy over the long term is going to go down as renewables become more uh, available and cheaper. And to the extent that renewables supplant demand for energy, what then happens to Russia's Arctic enterprise? Thank you. I think we, so we have one up here. Matt, just one more, and then we'll pause here and take that. Hey, Charlie. Uh, Charlie Eminger with the Atlantic Council. I was wondering to what degree Norway does any kind of coordination with its neighbors in Sweden and Finland vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Russian military buildup, and also to what degree uh, Russia perhaps uses differences among the Scandinavian nations uh, to its advantage. All right. Uh, Pavel, I'll start with you and then we'll work our way down to Julie. I would probably leave the first questions to you, Heather. Oh. <laughs> now, I was waiting for I, you to talk about U.S. I policy, Pavel. You're a legitimate <laughs> member of our panel, and as far as U.S. policymaking on the Arctic is concerned, I am not really, uh, not really an expert of that. I, uh, I was going to very hopeful about U.S. chairmanship in the Arctic Council, but I think uh, where U.S. did pretty good job. But I'm worried about uh, you know, after that is done about a uh, diminishing and declining interest, and I hope it will not happen. Um, uh, let me t touch upon the the issue of energy, which is one of the. As far as Russian Arctic discourse is concerned, that is very often perceived as an axiom, that Arctic is a treasure chest of the energy resources. There is kind of a lot um, of it there, and in many ways it is a mythology for which the only real bit of data 
very often misinterpreted and presented in entirely uh, surrealistic terms is the estimate of U.S. geological survey from the year 2007, long overtaken by the shale revolution, but still in circulation. There is no other uh, reference point in all the uh, in all the Russian discourses. And yes, in that est uh, estimate, there is a, a nice figure about undiscovered resources, which really cannot be estimated with any precision. Nevertheless, that is seen as the as the proof, proof positive of the richness of the Arctic in the uh, in the in the energy resources. And my reading is that these resources, uh, not just in the near term, but also in the mid term, and we know nothing about long term, will not be accessible, available uh, in, in in any way. Uh, useful for um, uh, for exploitation, exploration, and development. Russia's kind of future as an energy superpower, which it is, is much more onshore and not even with the new discoveries, but with the old Soviet exhausted oil fields, which were exhausted with the Soviet technology, but nevertheless contain a lot if you apply new technologies there. And the infrastructure is there, and kind of, it's far easier, cheaper, and economically rational. Only Russia needs access to this technology, which is presently banned by sanctions. Uh, in the kind of mid-term, uh, let's kind of try to break it out, the, the present confrontation. If that uh, is lifted, Russia has a generally bright future and as the energy producer and exporter without any uh, offshore Arctic uh, dimension, which is always, will always remain uh, cost inefficient, uh, very risky, and entirely, uh, entirely unnecessary. So that is my uh, that is my take as far as cooperation between the Nordic is concerned. Again, looking from Russia, the most worrisome part of that cooperation, the darkest cloud, is Finland and Sweden joining NATO. So every step in the Nordic cooperation is perceived through that particular lens. Uh, and kind of Russia is uh, watching very closely how suddenly the public opinion in Sweden, which is always so firmly neutral, is shifting very clearly in the direction that NATO membership is generally a good idea. It's less so in Sweden, uh, less so in Finland, but even there, many uh, kind of new initiatives like the creation of the center of excellence for dealing with the hybrid threats are seen in Russia as Finland getting closer to NATO, which is a, which is a worry, which is perceived again as a part of the Western revisionism. Before I turn to Julie, it's, uh, Charlie, it's interesting uh, this week, uh, the Swedish and Finnish defense ministers are meeting with uh, Secretary Mattis as part of a trilateral defense dialogue between the U.S., Sweden, and Finland. So just to uh, echo Pavel's uh, view that uh, obviously Russia's activities in the region have propelled uh, Sweden and Finland to think about uh, embracing a more robust defense posture. Sorry, Julie, just put a caveat that. Yeah, I think I'm going to leave the question on U.S. policy to, to Heather as well. But I would just like to make a comment tied to my own 
small uh, intervention uh, because what I was trying to shed light on is what happens when everything seem, seems to be sub subsumed under this uh, security logic. So the question, when does the US start to view trade routes as, as a threat is pre precisely when the entire national discourse is becoming so uh, preoccupied by Russia as a threat that it sees absolutely everything that Russia does as a threat. And this is a social fact in a way, uh, which, you can, which I can observe in Norwegian society. And I'm sure you can observe it here. So I think that's, that's uh, that you have to watch how, how Russia is talked about and related to here in the US. And then you unfortunately find this, that actions which should not be interpreted as uh, uh, actions of, of th threat or assertive actions actually become interp interpreted as such simply because of the way we view Russia as an act actor as a whole. So that's a, a big part of the problem here. Uh, then secondly, if energy or, or oil you know, is, is, is substituted and is not going to be so important any, any longer, is the Arctic going to be less important uh, for Russia? Well, certainly Russia will have you know, its, it's oil-dependent economy will have less capacity to act in the, the Arctic. On the other hand, you have to look at the map, you know. Uh, the Arctic is uh, uh, an important uh, part for Russia, of Russia. It's always going to be uh, in terms of sovereignty. Look at the bastion defense, you know, uh, up there. And also, it's fair to say that Russian policies on the Arctic are very broad, they include whatever is going on there and whatever is said to be important up there. So uh, I don't think uh, even if energy is going to uh, you know, not, not be viewed as, as so important, the Arctic is still going to be uh, important for Russia. And then in terms of um, this, uh, the change of the setup uh, in the north, uh, it is quite substantial and it's a big part of the problem, yes, that if you look at those countries, it used to be, you know, with Norway's self-imposed restrictions during the Cold War, yes, Norway had a border with Russia and no Norway was a NATO member, but it was still kind of more of a neutral zone because we did not have nuclear weapons on Norwegian soil, we did not have American uh, troops on Norwegian soil, and we had this very conscious policy of reassuring the Soviet Union. And then, of course, you had the Swedish neutrality and Finland. So all the talk uh, which is going on, could there be NATO membership? That's one thing. But the other part is that, in practice, uh, uh, Sweden and Finland are already collaborating very closely with NATO. Uh, and you see it, you know, when, when there's an exercise like there just was, uh, then, you know, the, the point of the U.S. Marines in, in uh, Norway, for example, is to, to be able to easily bring them over to the, what you call this, Östersjön, uh, um, the, the Baltic Seas, you know. So it's all actually already part of uh, an integrated system, which includes these three states to a much stronger degree than uh, during the Cold War. So the whole aspect of kind of a, a buffer zone <laughs> between the US and, and Russia here of neutrality, you know, it's, it's not there any longer seen from the Russian perspective. Hmm. 
two seconds on U.S. policy, and I promise I'll hold a separate panel on this uh, to, because it's worthy of it. Uh, you know, we have been largely missing uh, during the Cold War. We had an understanding of the geostrategic importance of the Arctic. Both Alaska was for energy security for the U.S., and we understood uh, it was the quickest way to get to the North Atlantic and the North Pacific. And uh, and and that all went away at the end of the Cold War. We largely, to use Julie's term, uh, have an institutional approach to the Arctic, using the Arctic Council and other multilateral form, because our identity as an Arctic nation is the weakest among the five coastal states. And we write strategies and hope that that will suffice uh, for lack of budget and lack of policy action and direction. The uh, title of this panel actually was, was meant to provoke um, because uh, you now have three countries that have very different visions of the Arctic. The U.S. does not see this as a strategic imperative. It just will not put the funding forward uh, for that because if it would, it would do a lot of different things. Russia, it's a strategic imperative. China, for me, it's growing into, to use Paul's term, an experiment and potential of strategic value and nature. So what are the costs to the United States if our two, according to our national security strategy, our peer competitors view the Arctic strategically, yet we do not? And that's what decision makers now have to understand. Um, it's no longer just okay to be status quo, the same policy we, we've had uh, since the mid-90s, which it's largely had. Um, is there now a strategic consequence if our two peer competitors have an entirely different view of the Arctic? Whether China will invest in LNG infrastructure in Alaska, uh, whether uh, the, the militarization of, of Russian uh, Arctic uh, islands poses uh, a potential to limit U.S. Uh, ability to operate in its Arctic. Those are the questions we have to discuss. So maybe if we can't get there, if the U.S. can't get to this policy decision by itself, perhaps it has to view it through the lens of being pushed out of the Arctic. So more to come in that thought. We have a couple minutes, and I knew there were some questions over here. If we can take them quickly, and then I promise coffee is in your future. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Hi, thanks. I'm Neela Banerjee with Inside Climate News. Um, I wanted to ask a, a little bit about the notion of, you know, the climate change has brought uh, w with um, more melting in the Arctic, um, more open routes, uh, more possibility that perhaps Russia and other countries see. Um, when the U.S. military sometimes discusses the Arctic, there's just also a sense of vulnerability with melting permafrost affecting infrastructure and so on. I was wondering whether Russia, from your perspective, sees or is facing any um, any threats from climate change to its uh, both its military and its commercial infrastructure through uh, through that region. Uh, first of all, whether those those threats exist, and secondly, whether Russia is actually doing anything about them and responding to them, and, and you know to make a more resilient infrastructure there. Thank you. Fantastic question, Julie. Want to start that one and then turn to Pavel? Yes, and just to stress that I I'm not an expert on Russia's Arctic pol uh, policies, but I, I did go through these these documents and uh, uh, official Russian documents on how they you know talk about the Arctic, what they're what they themselves say they're doing up there, and. Actually, questions of climate change, um, ecological uh, challenges, and so forth are very central in the way Russia talks about the Arctic, and it and they're working pretty consciously to 
to create kind of good governance. And sometimes it's interesting how even concepts which we use on, on our side of the east-west border are used on the Russian side. And this uh, concept of good governance and trying to you know, uh, uh, tidy up, they are definitely there. And, and, uh, and uh, uh, quite a lot of work is put into that from the, the Russian side, as far as I can see from the documents I have read. Yes, I would not uh, argue with that. I would probably uh, posit that the hard security threats still in the Russian thinking about Arctic have much more prominence than the new security threats, which are in fact coming fa faster than Russia uh, is preparing for them. And one the such case was the outbreak of anthrax on the Yamal Peninsula caused by the melting of the permafrost. And still that wasn't really taken seriously enough uh, you know, in part because for Russia the, um, the rights and the well-being of indigenous people on the high north is not really a matter of serious concern. When Canada is trying to put that in the center of its chairmanship in the Arctic Council, for Russia it's a completely foreign topic. They can't really connect on that matter. Russia is not at all a fan, uh, Russia you know, on, an official, on an official level, of uh, NGO activities in the Arctic, which is something which is perceived as suspicious, uncontrollable, and so on. And the government uh, the efforts uh, are still remarkably militarized even where it shouldn't be. It is the defense ministry, for that matter, which is responsible for clearing up all the environmental damage around all the rusting Soviet settlements, uh, taking out a lot of uh, empty, uh, empty barrels, which is a good thing to do. But why defense ministry? It has our kind of other concerns and, uh, and other strengths. And engaging NGO in this sort of uh, task uh, is, uh, is out of the question. So in Russian discourse, it's much more the thing that uh, the ice is melting and that is a factor in increasing geopolitical competition for the Arctic. That is the main thing. What are the other consequences which are immediately already coming? That is a matter of second priority, unfortunately. And I think Russia would pay for that dear. Yeah, I would just like to, to add a point on that. Uh, and my... Mm, claim that this is a kind of game that is going on in between <laughs> uh, East and West, but also within the countries. And I think that's the tragedy in a way of uh, security becoming center stage in Russia as it is, because you can see also how it changes the game between the actors on the Russian side. And you see a distinct difference between actually regional actors, for example, in the high north, and central actors, and how the central actors, where, you know, in Moscow these days, the hawks are really <laughs> ruling, and how they kind of step in to, uh, to uh, decide what's going on in the regions where you have the regional actors who are very, very uh, anxious to keep up, you know, the co collaboration, to keep cleaning up, for example, the nuclear waste and so on. So you have this empowering of the hawks, in a way, because of, of the uh, uh, increasing tendency of both parties to see this as a security game. Uh, and then you have between uh, bureaucracies, you know. So you have, unfortunately, uh, the, the Russian security services very often now defining <laughs> uh, uh, mm, uh, activities in spheres that are actually not theirs, you know. 
So, uh, and this is, of course, the example of the NGOs, like the Norwegian NGO Bellona, who has been working, environmental NGO, working, you know, very well in Russia for many years. Uh, if it were up to the Russian environmentalists, of course, it's welcome, they want them, all of that, but those are not the guys who are deciding. It's, you know, it's more the Russian security services, and their view is, of course, that these NGO NGOs, whatever they're doing, if they're working for gay rights, for environmental issues, they are rather part of a sneaky US uh, manipulative, manipulative hand or Western liberal hand into Russia trying to uh, uh, affect what the population thinks, you know, what the, the, in a sense trying to create a, a so-called color revolution maybe in Russia. So that's really the, 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 the tragic thing which is happening there, that these actors who could be, you know, our collaborative uh, partners are not empowered by the fact that the, the game is so security oriented. Yeah, I would say that Pavel's dark cloud is now coming over to my, over my head. Um, you know, in some ways, we, we think of Russia economically, you know, their Arctic ambitions, obviously the security, but uh, I my concern is the environmental challenge is actually what we're not talking about. We had anthrax last year. We had these methane craters, the permafrost thaw, what is going to be thawing in that permafrost. And because we are not in a, a point in our, our bilateral uh, and multilateral relations to to have that early warning, to work collaboratively to understand what these changes are, I just hope we are not surprised uh, when it's too late. Uh, so I, my concern is this is, as much as Russian documents talk about sustainable development, and I think they understand it, we've even seen some corrective action in Norilsk because of the extraordinary pollution uh, from, uh, from that. But I just, this is my concern, uh, and environmentally, catastrophes like Chernobyl, like other things, that was really the beginning of where the regime just could not handle that. So, you know, again, boy, Pavel, I'm usually optimistic. You've really made me now think these dark thoughts. So clearly it's time for coffee to wipe away these dark thoughts. So uh, before you go, uh, we're going to take about a 15-minute coffee break, but come on back. We have a great panel assembled uh, to talk about economic issues. But before you go, please thank Julian Pavel for a great discussion.
everyone out on a, in a timely way. And we have such a good panel. I don't want us to miss a moment. So thank you. Welcome back from uh, coffee break. Um, so our second panel is going to dive a little more deeply into the economic drivers um, of the Arctic. And um, although you only see, and I know Kristen's going to join us in a moment, you only see three panelists uh, here. We actually have one panelist who is with us from New Zealand by phone. It is 2.45 in the morning, my friends. And so we owe Dr. Anne-Marie Brady an amazing note of thanks uh, for joining us. Dr. Anne-Marie Brady is professor in the University of Canterbury. She is the editor in chief of the Polar Journal, uh, which is a must-read uh, for uh, polar uh, observers and experts. She's published over 10 books, 40 scholarly papers uh, on a range of issues, but she's really honed in on China's strategic interests in the Arctic and, and Antarctic. And her, her book, which again, I commend to you, China as a Polar Great Power. Um, Anne-Marie, can you hear us? Yes, I can, Heather. Thank you, Anne-Marie. What we've asked to do, because we want Anne-Marie to go back to bed uh, after she's done, she's going to give her remarks. We're going to just pause, and if there's anyone in the audience that has a question for Anne-Marie, and then we are going to bid her a good night and a good rest. So, Anne-Marie, I owe you many white flats for doing this. Thank you, my friend. Please, the floor is yours. Okay, thanks, Heather. Um, well, I'm going to be um, focusing on a whole range of aspects of China's interests in the Arctic, which are not simply uh, economic related. So I, I'm really grateful that for the opportunity to, to speak today because this is a topic that I've been working on for more than 10 years. And um, I've found uh, in my research that which is based on the Chinese language sources and particularly um, Chinese government materials, that it is uh, China's interest in the Arctic and Antarctic are a pretty good predictor of um, China's intentions as well as um, policies. For example, the Belt Road Initiative or um, expansion of um, China's northern ports as hubs um, and a more a much more a global focused foreign policy. So China is expanding beyond its borders like other rising powers that we've known in history. And in 2015, my interest was very 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 I was very interested by something that I saw in the Chinese media that um, China had identified the Arctic and the Antarctic, the deep seabed, outer space, and cyber as new strategic frontiers, uh, which from the Chinese perspective are all areas of undetermined sovereignty where China can expand and take up advantages that are available to countries with comprehensive national power. Now the Arctic countries will say, what do you mean about uh, the undetermined sovereignty in the Arctic? Um, well, that's Obviously, uh, there are some points of the Arctic um, Sea which um, are not owned by anyone or claimed by anyone. But even when the continental shelf, when or and if the continental shelf extended seabed claims are resolved, um, the Chinese analysis quite rightly points out that the littoral states would only be granted sovereign rights and not sovereignty. 
um, over those um, extended um, seabed claims. So from the, uh, the continental shelf claims. So from China's perspective, the Arctic, uh, as well as the Antarctic, where the Antarctic Treaty permits countries to who are non-claimant states to view the territories um, there as uh, international space or undetermined sovereignty. The polar regions are part of this um, new global focus of China's foreign policy that are looking to these strategic frontiers. And China has set itself the ambitious goal of becoming a polar great power within the next five to ten years. And the actual great powers, polar great powers in the world are the United States and Russia, um, who don't even use this term to describe their capabilities. And the fact that China has adopted and utilised this term is, is a, a really strong indication of China's confidence and level of ambition in global affairs. And I don't know if you can see the cover image of my book that has um, a new official map for China. It's a vertical world map uh, which has, has China at the centre of this map. Um, it shows the world island, as Mackinda called it, very prominently, 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 and also the Antarctic and the Arctic Ocean are very um, strongly featured in this particular version of the world um, as shown in China's vertical map. So China's got long-standing interests in the Arctic. Um, Chinese scientists were working with Soviet scientists in the 1950s and Chinese policy analysis were covering the sovereignty debate between the USSR and Norway um, in the 1970s and other issues. Um, I've read classified reports um, from the 1960s in Chinese about um, you know, potential of oil and gas exploration in the Arctic. Um, but, it, but international commentators noticed China's interest in the Arctic um, really spiking from 2007 onwards when Russia planted a, um, a steel flag in the Arctic seabed. But China's foreign policy and interest in the Arctic are what I've called an undeclared foreign policy, um, which is only now being slowly revealed to foreign audiences. And one of the important um, things to note about that is, or perhaps all the more so than, than um, most aspects of Chinese foreign policy, that there is a two-level communication strategy. So there's one message for the outside world, and there's a very different message in Chinese directed at the Chinese public and in the discourse amongst the, the specialists who work on the Arctic. So unless you're able to access that, second level of communication, then you won't really have a clear picture of what China's interests are. So China has three core interests in the Arctic. The first, and ranked in order, uh, is security, and that includes both traditional and non-traditional -secu uh, security. The second is resources, and that is, includes a very broad notion of resources, basically all the opportunities that, that might be available to a um, non-Arctic state um, in the Arctic. Um, and so obviously China's not going to be taking the resources there, paying market prices for them where it needs to pay, such as oil or gas, or accessing rights um, or opportunities such as fishing and tourism. And China also, the third category is strategic science. 
um, for example, China's the rollout of um, the Beidou 3 GPS um, system, the Arctic and Antarctic are very important for that for China. So um, the Chinese um, government funded a very extensive survey um, in between 2012 and 2016 involving a very large number of Chinese scholars, um, both scientists and social sciences, to assess um, the resources and the governance mechanisms of the Arctic and Antarctic, basically to find out what was there and what China, what rights China um, might be able to access and what limits there might be on, on China's um, access in the Arctic and Antarctic. And those, um, that assessment um, helped to back up that understanding of those three core interests in the Arctic. People have heard a lot about the Belt Road Initiative or um, One Belt, One Road, as it was earlier called, or the, um, the Silk Road or the Arctic Silk Road is another term that has been used just this year. The Belt Road Initiative is a China-centred economic order with strategic implications. And in this um, new order, all roads lead to China. And the Arctic Sea route was included in the Belt Road, Road Initiative in 2014. The Belt Road Initiative links all three of those core interests that China has in the Arctic, from security to resources to, to strategic science. Um, it is uh, the Belt Road Initiative is classic Mahan, Alfred Mahan, um, who's the um, U.S. historian um, who who um, was a strategist on um, the recipe for rising powers that they needed to to follow. And Mahan is um, the main influence on China's maritime strategy, um, as it what he once was a major influence on a rising Japan in the 1930s. And the three basic elements of Mahan, um, which we can see in China's policy, is first to set up a blue water navy, second to protect your sea lanes of communication with that navy, and third to um, and establish privilege access to resources. And Mahan talked about either through doing this through either colonies or through um, privilege or special dedicated market access. And that's certainly the approach that China, the second approach is what China will be following when it comes to the Arctic um, and, and has set up a lot of agreements with Russia, for example. And the Chinese sources speak frequently of the Arctic region, but China also has very detailed policies and interactions with the eight Arctic states, as well as the emerging one, uh, Greenland. And um, even, for example, um, with the United States, um, China it's, has been particularly developing relations with Alaska, being um, the U.S. Arctic state. China's in, involved in, in, in a hearts and mind campaign with different governments and peoples in the Arctic because negative public opinion will harm China's Arctic agenda. So finally, um, um, I would like to make the point that China's actions in the Arctic are also revealing for what they tell us about China's intentions um, or, as someone put it, the question as to whether or not China is a stakeholder in the global order. So from the analysis that I, I did in my book, I found that China's actions in the Arctic 
show us that China will act like other great powers in the past and in the present, it will follow or ignore international law when it suits it. But it won't attempt to overthrow or refute the existing rules. But when there are no formal rules, China will take advantage of openings. And when there are uh, international negotiations underway, then China demands to be at, at the table. And all of China's recent Arctic activities can be termed as efforts to gain China the right to speak in Chinese um, on further governance measures in the Arctic. China now regards itself as a legitimate stakeholder in Arctic affairs. Thank you. Anne-Marie, thank you so much. I just want to quickly turn to our audience if they have any questions. I have one here. And uh, Anne-Marie, let us know if you can't hear. You have to speak really close, Richard. Into it. Yeah. Richard Ranger with the American Petroleum Institute. And thank you, Ms. Brady, both for being up in the middle of the night and, and for a really interesting presentation. Alfred Thayer Mahan's thoughts were very instrumental in the U.S. decision to annex Hawaii in the late 19th century. And at the time, Hawaii was sort of of undetermined sovereignty. The Hawaiians didn't think so. They thought they had sovereignty. But it was a point of competition between the U.S. and Japan. Is part of China's view toward the Arctic, with your, your term undetermined sovereignty, being one of moving a chess piece there to place us in, in check because we've really not done much to take advantage of the Arctic coast that we have. I think that the rules of um, the international order have, are a little bit different from, say, the, um, the last century or the century before. So I think that um, a country like China doesn't need to formally declare a colony. In fact, in the 1800s, um, you know, colonialisation went out of um, favour. Um, I mean, New Zealand is a former co colony, and um, Britain was actually relatively reluctant um, by 1840 when New Zealand was colonised to take on a new colony. Colonies are very um, require a lot of uh, governance and, and, and resources, but a country can be dominant and influential over another nation while that nation retains its sovereignty, and um, so. I think that we are seeing China expanding its interests internationally, um, and they will—they um, are developing very, very um, close interests with governments in, in regions of the world where it, they want to to work. And there has been a very, uh, you know, very assiduous campaign to um, to win the. Um, support of Arctic governments for China's place in the Arctic, and you know, ten uh, a little over ten years ago, when Chinese um, analysis really started to um, expand on the Arctic because of uh, the the actions of Russia that really stirred up China to to move a bit faster on you know existing interests and plans. The um, China wasn't regarded as a, a legitimate stakeholder in Arctic affairs, and China had to work really, really hard 
um, and expand its uh, whole range of activities in order to to gain that um, acceptance of its role. So that's a long answer to your question, but I, I, I think that the there is a there's, there there is a slight difference now. I think that um, in, in global politics we're not likely to see much um, colonisation, but those those um, strategic territories are areas where any country in the world that has the resources and the human um, human resources as well as the financial resources to expand their interests and take up opportunities. And China is not the only emerging power that is looking to the Arctic, expand into the Arctic and Antarctica, for example, as well as the deep sea bed and outer space. Anne-Marie, this is Heather. In the um, reading of the China's Arctic White Paper, was there anything in that white paper that surprised you, uh, anything that, you, that cut or struck you as particularly important? Um, it looked very familiar to me, and, it, and um, it looked, I thought that there were some missing bits, like the... Um, the strong interest in um, security that China has. I've been encouraging Chinese um, scholars and government officials, whenever they would listen to me, that they should be more transparent about their intentions in the Arctic and Antarctic. Um, the other governments who have studied on Arctic and Antarctic affairs, like the United States, for example, are pretty transparent about what their interests are there. Um, and um, so I think I know that was a noticeable omission. Um, but um, the, the other aspects of the Arctic White Paper, I, they had been well signalled and, and, and rehearsed uh, in the preceding uh, months and years um, when China was talking about issuing a white paper, many of the points there. Um, had already been raised with different governments. So I, where I was surprised actually was um, when it did go public was that there was a little bit of um, attention about the fact that the um, Belt Road Initiative was included in the Arctic. Um, I think that was that might have been new to some commentators, but it was, uh, as I said, it was signalled as early as 2014. Anne-Marie, thank you so much. It is always such a privilege to get your insights and to provide a, a cogent presentation at 2.45 in the morning is above and beyond the call of duty. Anne-Marie, thank you so much. I'm going to ask our audience to applaud you, and then I want you to go back to bed. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Um, we'll now turn uh, to our panelists that are uh, not waking up, uh, but bright and alert and ready to help us with some great insights. We're going to uh, start with Tara Varasta, President and CEO of Arctia Group. Um, yeah, Tara is going to be dual-hatted because he also chairs the Arctic Economic Council, as Finland uh, is now the chair of the Arctic Council. Um, we know Taro from his frequent visits to Washington, uh, helping inform us about icebreaker construction and technology, and I'm sure you'll provide some of those insights, but uh, we're also hoping uh, that you will help us uh, uh, get up to speed on what the Arctic Economic Council is doing. It's uh, four working groups. A new working group has just been uh, added to that. Um, and really how business, circumpolar business, uh, is 
developing. Uh, and after Taro uh, finishes his presentation, we will turn to Professor Jacob Gozmirski, research professor at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and my boss as he's guiding us through this grant that focuses on the Russian Arctic. Uh, Jacob's going to give us some of the insights of how Russia uh, is really crafting and creating its uh, Arctic policies and looking at broader trends. Um, and then we are going to conclude with Christina Woolston, Vice President of uh, External Relations for Quintilian. You may have seen Quintilian's name in the news, a very large New York Times article a month or two ago, because uh, Quintilian has been working very hard to uh, put together uh, a, be a high-speed broadband provider for Alaska, and thinking about how to put subsea fiber optic cable that could stretch from Tokyo potentially to London and thinking about the Arctic and Arctic broadband and looking at some of those important commercial applications. I'll hasten to add that China is also thinking about laying some undersea cable from Finland to China. So uh, we're also what we call the digital Arctic, looking at how uh, the digital uh, technologies can transform the Arctic. So my job is to get out of their way and let's uh, turn to some insights. So Taro, over to you. Thank you for joining us all the way from Helsinki. Thank you very much, and thank you very much, Heather, and for the CAS, for the invitation to, to be able to meet with all, all of you today. It's, it's a great privilege. So let me start with the Arctic Economic Council developments and then move on uh, with the expectations on, on the polar navigation and the, the Arctic navigation and how, how the shipping is expected to, to develop within the next couple of years or, or even decades. The Arctic Economic Council was established in uh, 2014 when Canada was chairing the Arctic Council and uh, the, one of the overarching themes then for the Canadian chairmanship uh, was economic development. And uh, due to that fact, uh, a task force was established and the task force uh, recommended that uh, a circumpolar business forum, which was then renamed to be the Arctic Economic Council, to be established, and it was established. And uh, um, when the establishment uh, took place in Canada, uh, we continued then the work uh, as uh, the U.S. Uh, took the gavel, uh, as they took the gavel on, on, on the Arctic Council as well. And we stated the sort of the overarching themes of our work. And, and actually, the first one has become very, very timely, which is uh, market access, uh, i.e. the freedom of trade. And unfortunately, we've seen uh, developments around this area which are going the opposite way. The US is pulling out from TTIP, or it's at least put into a halt or frozen. Maybe we need an icebreaker for that. Yeah, I can provide. I can provide. I can provide you eight icebreakers <laughs> to make the ice to be broken. Uh, we have this status with the sanctions, uh, the halt of, of, of the TPP uh, in terms of the U.S. So that actually moves uh, the freedom of trade developments towards uh, the Far East areas. So uh, last September I was visiting uh, uh, our, uh, uh, Vladivostok in a meeting uh, where uh, the sort of the, these areas uh, trade development uh, was discussed and 3,000 people visiting over there. And in the final panel, 
We had uh, Prime Minister Abe, President Moon from Korea, and, and President Putin. And the notion was uh, that the free trade development is going towards this area. So my first argument here is actually that uh, are we, the so-called Western areas, moving out from the, from the free trade and endangering ourselves? And you can notion this also on the trade developments uh, between uh, China and the US. Um, the sanctions are already uh, hitting uh, the, the industry, and uh, uh, it's also surprising that for us, for instance, when we're a European company, you could say that the US sanctions don't apply with us, but yes, they do. Because uh, if there is an issue with a client who is then somewhat related to US trade, that means that maybe we are sort of uh, restricted in, 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 in moving forward with the trade. So this means that this uh, first overarching theme is, is very, very timely. Uh, Public-private partnerships, those are important for us because of the fact that within the Arctic areas there is an investment potential for $1 trillion, however only 4 million taxpayers, so uh, we need investment potential. And there we come to China. And uh, uh, definitely China's investment potential is visible in the Arctic. There are already uh, uh, hotels in the Finnish Lapland, which are invested by Chinese uh, companies. Big increase on the, on the Chinese tourism in, in, in the Finnish Lapland area, whereas tourism is one of the main focus areas of the Arctic Economic Council as well. Um, in terms of uh, uh, the uh, regulations within the Arctic, so unified regulations, uh, uh, schemes which uh, allow the companies to get the return on their investment, high-level regulations, uh, that is of high importance as well. And noting the fact that uh, it's an area for small and medium enterprises. So for instance, in my country, the small and medium enterprises uh, gain more than 60% of the revenues uh, within, the, within the Arctic businesses, so that is of high importance. We have more than 50 members now. Uh, we already have members uh, from uh, uh, countries outside the Arctic, from China, uh, from Korea, from Germany, to name a few, so we are making progress. All the working groups are active, um, the Energy Working Group uh, and uh, Arctic Stewardship Working Group, Maritime Services Working Group, and importantly, the uh, Connectivity Working Group, uh, where we already had uh, two Arctic Broadband Summits. The first one was in Barrow, and uh, uh, the next one is now going to be in, in Hokkaido, so I welcome you all to, to participate uh, to, 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 to this event. So the Arctic Economic Council is uh, moving along well, uh, gaining lots of uh, activity, lots of uh, interest, especially from, from the Asian areas. So we're happy with the work. So going then to the maritime issues, and, and let's start by looking into uh, the Arctic strategies of the four countries which we are talking here now. There are actually two issues which are noted on uh, all, the, all, all of the Arctic strategies of these countries, and it's the environmental aspects uh, as well as international collaboration. So Russia, China, uh, US and Norway all promote these two areas. However, if you have a look into the economical developments, that actually varies uh, already quite a lot. And within the US Arctic strategy, you don't see that many notions about the potential for the economical developments. Then when you go into the security issues and national sovereignty issues, it's Russia, US. Whereas, as we already learned, China is saying that, yes, we are going to participate in this, into this area, area as well. Um, 
The Polar Silk Road, uh, this initiative was uh, stated last summer uh, as part of the One Belt, One Road strategy and, and the idea. And that actually combines uh, Russian and Chinese developments in terms of uh, the Northern Sea Road collaboration. So uh, there is an agreement uh, which came out last July uh, in terms of uh, making uh, the investments together. We've already heard about the Yamal LNG and the investments on, on, on this one and, and the Chinese interest over, over there. Uh, however, there is new developments in this area as uh, Russia has uh, just uh, introduced new legislation around the Northern Sea Route, or effective 1st of uh, February this year, which uh, to simplify um, sort of uh, reduces the opportunities of foreign flagged uh, vessels to operate on the Northern Sea Route in terms of oil and gas transportation as well as ice breaking. And additional restrictions are expected uh, beginning of uh, January next year, whereas uh, these transportations could be limited into Russian built vessels. Well, I'm not expecting this to materialize because we have Japanese, uh, we have Australian, we have Chinese uh, uh, investment power in the vessels of, of Yamal LNG. So if this would be materializing, that would mean that the Yamal LNG transportations would stop, which cannot be the case. But uh, this is also a sign of protectionism. And, uh, and about this uh, legislation, we heard in Japan a couple of weeks ago in a conference uh, a statement by a Russian uh, government representative, well, this isn't anything else like the Jones Act. So it was considered as a countermeasure to the Jones Act. And we learned from Admiral Zugunov this morning that don't touch the Jones, oh, Act. the Jones Act. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So um, it's a development. Regarding blue economies, uh, the IMO introduced uh, the expectation to go into the heavy fuel oil ban just a couple of weeks ago, even though without a time, time frame, but that is uh, a work in progress. Um, an example of, uh, of uh, Blue Economies is uh, my company's uh, most recent icebreaker, the Polaris, which is the world's first icebreaker running on liquefied natural gas. So we can go to Yamal and take some LNG from, from there. So uh, maybe you should consider this type of uh, icebreakers in the U.S. as well. We have the technology. We'll let the Coast Guard know. Exactly. I've done that. <laughs> Um, IMO Polar Code, of course, that is an important area uh, for, for the developments uh, regarding, regarding the Arctic shipping and, and, and its safety. Well, um, then I was asked to have a, have a look into uh, identifying the dynamics of the expectations of, uh, of the um, Arctic shipping, and, uh, and that's, that's really an interesting area and an interesting issue. So let me start by uh, stating that, of course, it's about international trade developments and, and the international trade. Whereas actually, even though the uh, international trade is, is increasing, now for the first time uh, last year we noticed the situation that uh, the trend which was increasing the international trade between the market areas turned down. So that means that, the, unfortunately, protectionism works in that way. Uh, second important area is of course, freedom of trade. And, uh, and within the freedom of trade, uh, um, it's even more important in the Arctic areas, because within the Arctic areas, you, you definitely need the best available services and best available practices, because the area is so pristine. So if you can't use those, we can actually argue that the endanger, you endanger the sustainable developments. 
freedom of navigation. Um, already also learned this morning that there are different types of views in terms of the freedom of navigation within the Arctic. However, no big challenges have been seen yet. So that remains to be seen whether if there is additional tension, whether somebody wants to really to challenge this. This is not an issue for the commercial players. For instance, for my company, it's very easy just to follow whatever the rules are. So, we, I mean, it's easy. We want to do the, do the trade. And if there are certain regulations, like the NORDREC in the Northwest Passage area, or, or the Northern Sea Road regulations, it, it's not a problem for us to follow. So that's a political question, actually. Um, ship resource availability. So uh, we've seen the fact that there's new types of vessels uh, which are able to work without icebreakers. Unfortunately, I'm not a fan of those because I like to assist with my icebreakers. Um, however, new icebreakers uh, are needed as well. There's around 140 icebreakers in the world, whereas their average age is around 25, 30 years. So we need new capacity for, for that as well. On the Northern Sea Route, we have destinational traffic and you have transit traffic. The expectation on the increase of the destinational traffic is that it would be going into 40, 50 million tons within the next 10 or 15 years. However, in terms of the transit traffic, uh, there are different types of drivers, which include the developments in the Suez Canal, uh, the security developments in the Suez Canal, as well as piracy. So there is, for the moment, no piracy in the Arctic. It's still cold enough. They're not a friend of the cold. Uh, and, but if there is a big change in the Suez Canal uh, security development for a reason or another, that might shift the gear, actually, quite rapidly. You never know. Um, tourism. Uh, there's a great increase in tourism in the Arctic areas, uh, and uh, that is definitely one of the uh, drivers uh, for, the, for, for, for the future on the, on the Arctic shipping. And of course, the regulations. Uh, um, then we have an interesting development, which is the transportation corridors. So uh, there is an initiative to build a railroad from the Arctic Ocean to the Baltic Sea uh, and include that to a tunnel link, linking Helsinki and uh, Tallinn. So creating this type of corridor and link that to the northern, northern sea route. Uh, and uh, that is something there, this sort of EU notion comes to play as well because of the EU funding and the, and, uh, the EU motorways of the seas, uh, seas developments. We can't forget oil price. So uh, the oil price has uh, become from $50 to $75 within a year. Um, many people say that Arctic drilling starts to be, offshore drilling starts to be economically viable if you go to maybe $80 or $100 or something like that. New leases uh, are again uh, becoming a fact also in the, in the US Arctic. So maybe that is going to be the case uh, within the next couple of years as well. And it's happening in the Russian areas as, as we speak. So there is great uh, expectation on this one. Uh, and uh, um, in terms of uh, the fact that um, Finland has been sort of a mediator and there's been discussions about the opportunities as we are chairing the Arctic Council that uh, Finland could host a high-level summit uh, to discuss the, the issues. We address the problem that there is no forum to, to discuss the uh, sovereignty issues within the Arctic context. So this might serve with, with this case 
and our president has been active on, on, on this one. There's been um, the dialogue or the forum for the Arctic uh, military commanders, but they have not met in two or three years because of the, of the, of the current situation. Um, so um, my expectation is that uh, the Arctic shipping will have moderate development. Uh, yes, Costco shipping, for instance, from China is increasing its traffic. But it's been, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 vessels, something like that, in, in terms of the transit. I'm not expecting a big boom on this one. Yes, moderate uh, uh, increase on that one. But the destination traffic is another story, so uh, there, there will be increase on this, this area as well. And let me then conclude my remarks with a proposal. Since uh, Finland is now chairing the Arctic Council, and we've seen that uh, there's been uh, developments like uh, uh, the oil spill response agreement, which is legally binding, uh, the emergency preparedness agreement. Uh, so in terms of the Arctic resources, why shouldn't we have an Arctic icebreaking collaboration agreement? Meaning that once uh, we have uh, great assets which are running idle on one part of the Arctic, and on the other part of the Arctic, you have a need of resources. So are we stupid here? Why, why don't we do something about it? Should we do this shared economist thinking uh, around this issue as well? And because the Arctic Council is also uh, working great on, on these types of issues which are related to search and rescue, so we can relate this, uh, this idea for this one. So uh, let me uh, leave the CSIS with this proposal and hope that you will move forward with it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. You got a presentation and I got a homework assignment. Okay. <laughs> Jacob, please. Thank you very much for uh, giving me this opportunity to share my insights on the Russian Arctic policy. When, I, when we agreed on the program, I saw that I was facing a huge challenge because I was given 10 minutes to present you uh, the nitty-gritties of the Russian Arctic policy making. So I decided to uh, approach this in a kind of uh, uh, birds, from the bird's eye perspective and also decided to go to the very source. Uh, first, we have to understand that if we want to understand Russian Arctic policy, we have to understand in, within which political framework this Arctic policy is being uh, designed and realized. It's about um, uh, two key questions. Who, who has the interest in uh, the Arctic in Russia and uh, who has the power in Russia? And on, when we look at those two aspects of the Russian policy, we will be, under, we will be able to understand um, how this policy is uh, being made. And um, uh, we have also learned that there is a lot of interest in Russia in things Arctic. I happened to take part in this Arctic Forum in uh, December 2017, and this, is, this, provides, uh, this picture provides a very good uh, map of the uh, key concerns Russia has when it relating to uh, the Arctic questions. And um, uh, this has to be viewed against the uh, broader framework. There is this understanding of Russia as being a network-based state. Uh, there's this concept of Russia being a dual state where uh, formal institutions uh, play a certain role, but uh, uh, informal networks play even a uh, far greater role. So I decided to look at um, how this Arctic policy is being uh, realized within this uh, network state uh, framework, and I also decided to go to the very source. I decided to look at 
how the story of the Russian Arctic policy is being told by the Russian government itself. So I went to the official website of the Russian government, um, identified a tag that they use in order to describe uh, the Arctic policies, Arctic Arctic activity, and I discovered that uh, between 2008 and 2018 there are 106 events that are by the Russian government itself defined as uh, relating to Arctic uh, policy. And I used this um, uh, collection of texts to map the Russian Arctic interests. It uh, gives us some understanding of um, who are the key actors in the Arctic policy, uh, what are the key topics, and what is the geographical focus of this policy. And uh, what I'm going to uh, present on the following uh, three or four slides is based on the kind of statistical analysis of the text of this uh, Russian official coverage of the Arctic policy. Uh, it should be uh, underlined here that this is a kind of top layer of the uh, Russian story about uh, official story about uh, the Arctic. There are uh, plenty of documents uh, that describe uh, those uh, approaches to the Arctic in more detail, but I decided to take this bird's eye view perspective because I think that uh, uh, taking this bird's eye view perspective will give us a good understanding of uh, the priorities. Because, uh, and my assumption here was that uh, the more you mention an issue or a topic uh, in the text at uh, this top layer of the Russian uh, uh, narrative on uh, official narrative on the Arctic, then uh, we should uh, assume that uh, the more uh, often you mention this term, the more important it is for you. So this is a kind of the very basic assessment of what I'm going to uh, present now. Uh, this uh, gives you an understanding of the Russian activity on the Arctic. It's uh, a kind of representation of how many times per year this uh, Arctic activity is being mentioned on the official website of the Russian uh, government. And you, we see that there is a peak in 2015, and then there is a kind of uh, downward spiral. We sh I should make a reservation concerning 2018. This uh, uh, I collected those texts in March 2018, so it's not a complete coverage of 2018, but we see a kind of um, steep increase in uh, the Arctic interest in the Arctic activity and then some um, ups and uh, downs. We have to, having in mind the high level of uh, personalization of Russian policy, we have to understand who is in charge and who is in, uh, uh, in, in, in kind of uh, responsible for this Arctic policy. And we see that uh, four or five names are mentioned at this um, uh, top level of this uh, narrative. Uh, Dmitry Medvedev is obviously a person uh, very much in charge, but uh, Dmitry Rogozin is the second one, and um, Arkady Dvorkovich is mentioned nine times, and uh, Sergei Donskoy, Russian Minister for Natural Resources, is mentioned one, and uh, Maxim Oreshkin, who is responsible for Russian uh, economic development, is mentioned only once. Uh, in order to understand uh, what is the kind of power of those actors to uh, put their mark on the Arctic policy, it's also important to place them on the kind of informal power map in Russia. I uh, used uh, the collection of uh, annual rankings uh, presented by the Nezavisimaya Gazeta. They publish uh, uh, those rankings of top 100 political figures in Russia on monthly and annual basis. I used, uh, for, this, for the purpose of this brief study, the annual rankings and placed those uh, actors 
uh, not Putin, not Medvedev, because they are usual on the top of the list on this uh, power list. And we see that uh, Rogozin has a kind of um, uh, specific trajectory on this map. Uh, Dvorkovich has also uh, an active, uh, uh, an interesting trajectory, and other actors are deemed to be much less important. Uh, what is um, especially interesting is the relatively weak position of Alexander Novak. Alexander Novak is Russia's uh, Minister of Energy. He is responsible for the sector that generates a lot of uh, revenue for the Russian state budget until 2015. Uh, uh, oil and gas-related revenues uh, formed 50% of the Russian state uh, budget revenue. So having a man who is responsible for the sector and not having a very high position on the Russian informal map of power is uh, an interesting issue. Then uh, I also used the very same approach to uh, mapping the topics that uh, Russia is very preoccupied uh, much. And uh, the size of the, uh, the size of those uh, uh, fields uh, represent the uh, importance of the topic. Um, what I did here was that I took all the whole text uh, from this top level of uh, the Russian description of the Arctic politics, and I decided to conduct a kind of statistical analysis of uh, the content, and then I grouped some of the issues into kind of uh topical clusters. And we see that, for instance, um, uh, when we were to follow the Russian um, uh, popular debate on the Arctic, we would most probably be uh, amazed by the very high level of securitization of uh, things Arctic. When we follow the Russian official uh, policy and the way it is represented, uh, security and uh, military questions are not very high on the agenda. What is very high on the agenda? I have also to make a reservation. I removed from this list uh, two terms that are uh, very much predominant in this uh, collection, Arctic and Russia, for obvious reasons, because having them here would somehow uh, make the picture less clear. But there is a lot of focus on uh, maritime activity, a lot of focus on various aspects of development in the Arctic. Um, there is a very high level of uh, state, uh, state, uh, uh, state activity, government state is referred to quite often. And we see also that uh, things that are related to uh, various aspects of energy policy are also very high on the agenda. Gas is mentioned 28 times, uh, natural resources, mostly um, uh, petroleum resources are mentioned 20 times, LNG is mentioned 14 times, uh, oil-related questions are mentioned 15 times. So, so it's, uh, this really gives you a good understanding of what are the uh, what is the hierarchy of Russian uh, interests in the Arctic. Uh, what is even uh, more interesting is this geography of Russia's Arctic interests. I decided to look at uh, what geographical units are mentioned in this, in those, uh, in this series of uh, documents and uh, discovered that there's a lot of focus on Yamal. This has much to do with the development of the Arctic energy resources. The Sabeta is mentioned 10 times. This is this new report that is used to uh, uh, send uh, economic uh, energy resources to markets. Regions are mentioned eight times. For some strange reasons in those uh, Russian um, uh, government documents, Spitsbergen or Svalbard is mentioned 16 times, and this has something to do with the perception of uh, Russia that uh, sees uh, Spitsbergen as a kind of very special case uh, regulated by a spe very special uh, international law arrangement. Barents is mentioned five times. We see that there is uh, relatively little focus on, uh, uh, for, some, for example, Yakutia, that is the biggest uh, Arctic 
weak region in Russia, on one, mentioned on one time. So, so, so this also gives you a kind of good understanding of what, are the geographic, what is the geographical focus of this policy. And then uh, uh, this uh, policy making uh, takes place mostly in the uh, Russian uh, State Commission for uh, the Development of the Arctic that is uh, headed by uh, Dmitry uh, Rogozin and that has focus on those so-called uh, Arctic key zones. Uh, some years ago, a document was published uh, about the so-called Opornie Zone of Arctic and those Opornie Zone uh, could be translated into uh, key areas of development and uh, there is a number of projects to be realized in those um, uh, Arctic zones. In order to understand um, who is involved in this uh, policy making at this more operative level, I uh, conducted an analysis of the uh, affiliation of the actors who are members of this uh, state commission on the Arctic questions. And we see that there is a huge domination of uh, state actors, 21 uh, representatives of the Russian government. There is some representation of business, private, but also of those uh, people uh, representing state-owned uh, companies operating in the Arctic, uh, relatively little involvement of the political class, only uh, two members of the State Duma and one member of the Federation Council, and uh, all uh, Arctic leaders are included. I also decided to look at what are the topical affiliations of those members and uh, discovered that regional development has a huge uh, interest and uh, uh, the second on the list are those who work on defense and security related matters, meaning that this uh, lack of uh, focus when it comes to topics uh, is maybe counterweighted by the activity of those actors who represent this uh, Siloviki uh, faction in the Russian uh, government on this uh, map. And then, in order to understand who is really interested in Arctic, I conducted um, uh, search, uh, a series of searches using official uh, websites, uh, search engines of the Russian state institutions, and uh, to discover how often uh, Arctic is uh, mentioned in those um, uh, official websites of the single institutions. And we see that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, uh, shows a great interest in the things Arctic. The on the list is, in fact, Ministry of Defense. Uh, very f low on the list we see, for instance, Ministry of Finances, but this has maybe something more to do with the fact that the search engine is not very effective because when I used the Google website to conduct the Arctic, uh, the search for the Arctic on this website, then the situation was slightly different. I got one, almost 200 uh, hits. So this really shows you what um, is the institutional interest in the things Arctic in uh, Russia. And the last but not least, it's important to understand what is the current state of the Russian debate on the Arctic. I went through uh, last month's uh, coverage of the Russian Arctic in uh, Rasiska Gazeta and discovered, for instance, that um, Dmitry Medvedev, when he gave his speech on the state of the nation on uh, 20th uh, April 2018, he mentioned Arctic only once. So this means that um, 
I think is most probably not very high on the current Russian state agenda. There is also something that is important to understand that there is special wording when it comes to Russia's coverage of the Arctic. They use quite often two verbs to describe Russian policy towards the Arctic, asfayenie, which means development, and pakarenie, which means conquest of the Arctic. So those are the two, two dominant verbs used in order to describe Russian policy. And we, I also discovered that I was <coughs> very happy with this uh, new report that was published in uh, uh, April 2018 by uh, Russian uh, Agency for Political and Economic Communication. They were somehow assigned the task by the Russian government to look at the importance of various projects that <coughs> have been realized in the Arctic, and they published a list and a kind of brief assessment of um, the Russian policy in the Arctic. And I would really recommend uh, this one to all those who are interested in uh, learning more about Russian Arctic policy, because this is the most current assessment of the effects of the Russian uh, policy in the Arctic. And uh, knowing that um, uh, Admiral Tsukunov will join us for this event, I also decided to look at what is the Russian understanding of the U.S. policy and. Uh, identified one statement uh, presented in Rasiska Gazeta where there is a kind of expression of some concern for uh, the United States uh, caused by this lack of icebreaker uh, capacity in the Arctic. So uh, I will uh, stop here and will uh, give the floor to uh, Christina. Thank you. Jacob, thank you so much. I so want you to map the U.S. government's Arctic. Uh, I want you to do the same thing for yeah. the United States, and then okay. I want to do a comparison of uh, it, that. It, it can definitely be done, but oh. then we have to agree on the price. Like. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued on that. Kristen, let me uh, help us understand, end us on sort of what a digital Arctic looks like in the future. Thank you for being with us. Great. Thank you so much. Well, I will try my best to fit within the seven minutes that we were allotted here to get through my piece. And I really wish I would have stuck with my Russian when I was in college, but um, I wasn't very good at it. Um, Quintilian is a private company headquartered in Anchorage, Alaska, um, privately funded. We have just completed the first uh, subsea fiber optic cable system in the United States Arctic. Um, but first, I would like to just very briefly touch upon something that may have risen to the news um, across your desk or in your company. Um, regrettably, last year, Quintilian CEO, um, we discovered that there were some fraudulent activities, and this involved some investors and falsification of records. Um, we did an internal investigation. Our board, our investors acted very swiftly and quickly and did an internal investigation, turned this over to the Department of Justice. And then for the last seven months or so, the Department of Justice has been con conducting its own investigation. It recently became public. It was something that we dealt with last year. Um, but the, um, the situation became public after the um, conclusion of the investigation. Um, the good part of this is that our investors and our customers have um, stuck with us. The system has been built. It went into operation on December 1st of 2017, and our business case is as strong as ever. Um, the customers that we have are 10 and 20 year take or pay contracts, so from a business standpoint, very solid present and future for the company, but I did want to be sure to touch upon that. If anybody has any questions, please feel free to grab me afterward in the lobby. I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. 
Um, this was October 27th, 2017. This team completed the final splice of the first, as I mentioned, North American Arctic subsea fiber optic cable system. Um, it took us roughly three years of subsea and terrestrial con um, construction in order to reach that day. Um, the network, and I'd like to talk a briefly about the construction of it because it is quite historic and, and groundbreaking, um, but we built new terrestrial network from Fairbanks to Prudhoe Bay. Prudhoe Bay, as many of you know, uh, Prudhoe Bay Dead Horse Area is the largest North American oil and gas um, development exploration field, and we're seeing with ANWR, the 1002 um, opening up, as well as other finds in Smith Bay along the coast of Alaska, a tremendous amount of activity in oil and gas, um, in a situation where with, with better oil prices, um, you know, the, the proximity and the ability to uh, move forward with some of these projects are um, beginning to see some light of day, which we're very excited about. Um, our system is anchored by connecting to existing fiber, which runs south from Fairbanks into the Pacific Northwest. All of Alaska is connected to the World Wide Web, the World Internet, um, through those two cables that run to the Pacific Northwest. So Quintilian's network has extended north into the west into the remote rural and coastal Alaska communities that you see on the map. Um, from a strategic standpoint, which I'll talk about about briefly um, in a moment, we, as the gateway of the U.S. Arctic and as a, um, a strong resource um, state, we do believe that the infrastructure that we've built is just the first place in creating a digital um, environment in the Arctic as well as the potential for a tech corridor. Through the course of 2015 and, um, and 2016, um, Quintilian operated in um, the coastal waters off of Alaska. So we had a window roughly the end of July, beginning of August through the middle of October when we could operate our vessels. Um, we had 13 vessels in the water in 2016, eight vessels in the water in 2017. We laid over 1,100 miles of subsea cable. Um, the cable was laid in four separate cable spreads. We worked around the migratory patterns of the, um, the species, the migratory um, mammals in the Arctic. Um, that included whales, walrus, um, polar bears, seals. So we took great pride and great um, pains in working locally with the co-management groups, the Alaska Eskimo Whaling Commission, um, the Barrow Whalers Association, as well as COERIC and other um, nonprofits that um, are charged with migratory protection in that area. Um, the system that we installed um, runs at about 30 terabits per second. So when the system went live on December 1st of 2017, we dropped 200 gigs into each of the five remote communities into Alaska, and the system has been built for the future. The system is built for Alaska's needs as well as what we see as the future of the Arctic and telecommunications. Um, we've made this a world-class system at every level. I showed you two slides ago. This is what our cable looks like. The small strands of fiber optic glass in the middle are what transmit all of the data. Everything else is built for protection in the Arctic. We have buried every inch of this cable along the seafloor up to four meters deep in the areas where we have seen the most um, ice scouring activity. We spent two years surveying and mapping the seafloor to look for any historical ice scouring. And while we couldn't tell if the ice scouring was 10 years old or 10,000 years old, we decided to go deeper 
cheaper than any present ice scouring, um, which meant that we had to use some significant equipment to trench and bury the cable, as well as creating a fiber optic cable um, that's very, um, that's reinforced, and Tara, you, um, this interests you, but we had to take multiple ships to the Arctic to carry the cable because it's double armored and it's a lot heavier than typical cable that you see in the subsea areas. Because the water is shallower off the coast of Alaska, that's why we had to bury, but also the ice movement in the area. And on the coastal areas where we went from the shore end connection, we took even greater investment in time and um, resources. We, from the shore end, we use horizontal directional drilling techniques and it's with steel boring tools we went down 60 to 80 feet and then we went out a mile offshore so the the fiber is buried in steel conduit in place um, roughly a mile offshore and this allowed us to one protect the cable but it also allowed us to avoid any coastal um, impact by not cutting into the to the coastline um, every 30 meters is, uh, 30 kilometers, excuse me, is a repeater, and this boosts the signal, so the latency um, issue is avoided, and this is built, as I mentioned, just um, for Alaska as well as for the connection internationally. We use concrete mattresses to further protect um, the um, the branching units into each community. So it's a trunk and branch configuration, meaning that if should anything happen to one of the connections into a community, it doesn't affect the others. We currently have a backup of satellite, but once we are connected with our international um, fiber, as I'll show you in a moment, that allows us, as well as the state of Alaska and the US Arctic, to have multiple fiber paths. We used a remote operated vehicle. This went along the seafloor and checked every inch of what we installed in 2016, as well as what we installed in 2017. So in 2016, we finished all but 40 miles of our 1,100 mile subsea cable system. And that was because we experienced a weather situation that was unlike had, had been seen in the last 25 years. Sea ice went in and out multiple times. We had to cease operations. We weren't using icebreakers. We had to use ice managers, which gently um, <laughs> which gently managed the ice around the area where we were laying cable. Um, so it was a great disappointment that we did not finish in 2016. However, it did allow us the opportunity to, for two years now, we've seen and have been able to monitor live the network as it's operating. And we have two years of fault-free, flawless performance on our network. And so that was one thing that we didn't plan for, but at the end of the day, um, gives all of us great reassurance about the um, in impact that we have and the installation that we've successfully managed. So our network is allowing for opportunities. It is a transformational system. System, one that um, we are very proud of. And as we look forward to the next steps for our network and what that timing looks like, we think it brings even more opportunities for a number of um, industries as well as a number of communities. So phase one went into service, as I mentioned, December 1st, 2017. Um, our next phase is to connect by the early 2020, end of 2019, um, optimistically, um, to connect to an international fiber outside of Alaska. Um, we will begin surveying this summer. Construction begins next summer. We'll have you know, pretty specific information to announce in the next couple of months what that exactly looks like. Um, but our goal, we are aggressively moving towards this and this meets the need of both our international system 
as well as the need for redundant telecommunications in the U.S. Arctic. Um, so again, by 20, end of 2019, beginning of 2020, um, our plan is to have an con international connection um, into Japan, um, as well as the potential to connect back into the Pacific Northwest at that time. Um, our phase three plans are a little, are progressing in simultaneous fashion, um, but the plans are, it's a, it's a difficult build, and we foresee in the next three to five years, um, having an accomplishment of phase three connection internationally into Europe. What that looks like is still in development, and of course we are talking with Taro and others about what it means to lay cable in either the Northwest Passage or the Lower Northwest Passage, as this map um, shows. We do have a fairly near-term opportunity um, and goal as we look to um, diversifying both U.S. Arctic and the Northern Canadian terrestrial network um, excuse me, fiber network, um, of dropping a line into a Canadian community just inland, or just, excuse me, across the border um, of the U.S. and Russia, um, of Canadian borders. So those are things that we're looking at in the very near future, um, but we're excited for the first time for Alaska to have true, diverse um, fiber networks in and out of our state. So this first slide was developed by Jason Seslovich by Senator Dan Sullivan's office. Um, and this looks at the strategic location of Alaska as the Arctic state and the Arctic border for the U.S. Um, as you can see, the militarization of Russia has been uh, much more advanced than Alaska in the U.S. Um, in this part of the world. So we see that every infrastructure development meeting the demands that we will see for all of these strategic plays in the Arctic um, transportation, militarization, trade, economy, all of these pieces, research um, require a certain level of infrastructure and telecommunications is certainly one of um, a very important piece of that puzzle. Um, next we see um, earlier um, Julie on the earlier panel um, was talking from the Norwegian and Russian um, relations um, strategically and militarily. We see Norway's recent, I think it was last year, they announced that they would be building the largest data center. Um, we think that the Arctic is perfectly positioned for a number of technology advancements, tech corridors, um, attracting tech companies to move north. Um, there are a number of things that provide benefits for potential tech areas, but they require multiple paths of fiber connections. And that's just one of the things that we won't have until Quintillion is able to connect its network internationally end of 2019, beginning of 2020. So we're very excited to see technology and industry move, looking to the northern latitudes for relocating and for investment. And then finally, what we're seeing in the communities in Alaska is um, as I mentioned, transformation within our communities. I was born and raised in a rural community in southwest Alaska. My parents still live there. Um, it's the largest commercial fishing region in the entire world for red salmon. And they, too, rely on, regardless of the fact that it's very remote, they rely on technology. They monitor fish, and they allow fishermen to fish each day once they have the catch recorded, um, and they have to upload that to the Alaska Fishing Game website. Unfortunately, they have many restrictions in the technology there and the capacity, and so it lags, and so fishermen are not seeing the economic opportunities that they could were they able to um, communicate in a timely manner with 
these resources. Um, the community of Nome is one of the communities that we turned fiber on in December. Um, the Nome City School District recently turned over from a microwave and satellite-based system to a fiber system. They're saving roughly $200,000 a month for a 100 meg connection into that community. Hospitals, for the first time, will have the capacity to digitally transmit and communicate with experts um, on a health basis. So we're excited about the education, um, the health, as well as the economic opportunities that a true um, high-speed broadband network will bring to these communities. So um, this is just the first. We've only been in uh, service for about four or five months now. So in a year and two years, um, we're excited about what this will look like for the communities. Um, we are a wholesaler, so we don't provide services to the end user. We sell to the communications companies, and they provide services to the schools, hospitals, and residents. Um, thank you very much for your time. Kristen, thank you so much. I know that was we're speed, speeding you through that presentation. I think this question of the Arctic connectivity a working group within the Arctic Economic Council, it came out of the Arctic Council's broadband task force, uh, so, so important to connect uh, very far away communities. We are out of time, but I think we can probably take one question, unless you have been so filled with Arctic knowledge you can't take it anymore. They're so filled with knowledge, they cannot take it anymore. <laughs> uh, but no, this was, uh, thank you so much. It was a rich discussion of, of strategic opportunities for state actors, for companies that are seeking those opportunities, for how governments coordinate all of these efforts. I have to say, I have not answered the questions today. We were trying to divine, is the Arctic a strategic pursuit, a great power miscalculation? I come out in the strategic pursuit, but the economic questions are still, to me, a little fuzzy. My crystal ball isn't clear. There's great potential a lot of dynamics going into that. So clearly we're gonna to have to come back together again and keep figuring this out and keep our crystal ball on the table. But thank you so much, Anne-Marie, who's hopefully blissfully asleep. For Tara, Jacob, Kristen, thank you so much. And thank you as always for joining us at CSIS. Have a great day, thank you. <laughs>